2: Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning.
3: Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to
2: Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Carol is joining us today. Tom, you spoke with Carol, so I'm going to have you go ahead and uh, kick this
1: off. Yeah, absolutely. Carol, welcome aboard. Thanks. Thank you for uh, taking my call last night and we chatted. You had some pretty unique uh, encounters. And the one I really want to start off with is the one that kind of riveted me. And that's the one when you're a little girl when you saw this. So this is the one uh, we want all the details. We want everything. And um, so kind of start from the beginning with uh this creature that you saw that was about your size and um and I I'm trying to remember you were what six or seven when you saw this or nine?
4: Yes. Yes, I was six.
1: 6 years old. I okay, was, well let's let's start from I the beginning.
4: <laughs> okay. Well, I I appreciate you having me on and um I thank you for your time and uh, I guess I'll just launch into this. Uh, I didn't realize for a while that this is what I had seen. I didn't quite know what it was. I figured it was some sort of ape or monkey. Uh, and then when I saw one later, when I was 13 or 14, that was the really scary experience. And, of course, that was a much bigger uh, <laughs> specimen, if you if you'll call it, that was really heart-stopping. And so I didn't connect that the two things might be the same thing. But I think what I saw when I was six years old was a small juvenile. And um, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and we had never heard of a Momo and we really didn't have much knowledge about what a a wild man was supposed to be. And we hadn't seen any of the movies or read any of the books or anything like that. Although my folks would say things like, uh, you know, come in at night, don't, don't play outside after it gets dark, the boogers will get you and things like that, you know, because both my uh, parents' families came from uh, Tennessee and, the Ozarks. And so they just said these things, but I don't think that we had any knowledge about what they were really referring to. And so, uh, this place that I grew up in Kansas city, uh, was on the lower East side. And actually there was a lot of, uh, woodland around there. Most of the yards were at least an acre. Some were much more, And there were trees in between most of the properties. And so uh, you did have deer come up through the yard. Most everyone had gardens. And I know that my my parents had uh, purchased a place back then, $8,000, and you could get a pretty nice house and property back back in the day. And so it had four little peach trees on it. We had an apple tree, and we had a lot of large oaks. And we found out later that the reason our trees were so large was because there were underground springs there that the trees were tapping into. And it actually was near the site of an early school when the property had been owned by a Colonel Thomas Pitcher. So uh, that's kind of the background on it. That's all I'm going to say about where it is. That's actually a lot of information. But uh, at the time, I was about six years old, and I date this back to the fact that my mom had made me a little uh, jacket, and I had a frilly little white bonnet that I wore for Easter. had the little white gloves with it and the whole thing that the little girls uh, did at that time. And... Of course, I was a little tomboy, and I really didn't like dressing like that any more than I had to, but Mom and Dad said that we were going to go visit these neighbors of ours, and she told me to get cleaned up, and you know, since I was young, she laid my clothes out, and as a result, I got dressed and ready before anybody else did with her help, and uh, the rest of my family, Mom, Dad, and my brother, which he's three and a half years older than myself, uh, they were still in the house getting ready. And so I was ready. I went on outside. It was a beautiful day. It was in the late spring, I'd gather. Uh, Things were nice and greened up. The grass was greened up and the trees were just beautiful. Uh, And I had the whole yard to myself and I can remember I just fiddled around like kids do. You know, I played hopscotch a little bit uh, on the sidewalks. Our house sat up on a terrace, and uh, you actually came out the door on the south side of the house. Um, The front door didn't face the street. Came out on the end, and then you uh, went down a sidewalk and dropped down three steps, another sidewalk, dropped down another three and then it turned, there was a another series of steps, like six more steps um, before you, you know, there was a landing and six more steps, in other words, before you got to the bottom and two uh, high retaining walls on either side of this. And the reason I'm telling you all this is to kind of give you an idea of, of the layout. Um, the neighborhood was very terraced, very hilly. Um, the roads were hilly no matter what direction a kid rode their bike you know you were gonna you're gonna have a good time uh, sailing out and then you're gonna have to uh, pump your legs to get back home now from our house you could look out of the bathroom window and you could see a long long way you could see kind of down in down in the valley you could see the road winding around um, for long distance as I said, a lot of trees everywhere. We didn't have sidewalks. That neighborhood still doesn't have the sidewalks. Uh, there were a lot of gullies, a lot of places where the, uh, you know, the runoff uh, made these uh, deep ditches on the sides of the road, paved roads. Uh, but that particular day, I had an experience that I, it was completely new to me and Uh, I went out on that landing uh, that overlooked the the, uh, driveway. We had a gravel driveway, and we had a 55 Chevy parked in the driveway. And uh, I don't know, but I felt very odd. I really don't remember feeling that before. I had every hair on my body stood up. I had goose flesh. I thought what's this about it was new to me I didn't understand it I didn't it was uncomfortable I didn't understand it and I felt like I was being watched so I looked all around every direction I could see I looked as far as I could see because I thought well I'm going to see a neighbor or I'm going to see someone's dog because there were a lot of big dogs in the area just about just about everybody had dogs And you know, if something happened to set the dogs off, you would have dogs barking all you know for a a long way, trying to get them to settle down. Well, um, this feeling continued, and I I was told not to get myself dirty, and so I was just waiting on the family, and I climbed up on that retaining wall. And from there, I could see a, a long distance and I looked all around every direction. I, I couldn't realize, I couldn't understand why I was feeling so um, vulnerable. I actually felt kind of like I was in danger. Couldn't see any reason why I would be in danger. And I stood up on that wall And I put my arms out and, you know, as kids will do, I pretended like I could fly over the driveway and I thought about how it would be neat if you could jump as far that you could jump to the car, that kind of thing, like little kids do. And I have some theories about that, actually. I kind of think when I stood up there like that and put my arms out and I was making some noise, you know, jumping hopscotch and stuff. I think I made some sound and perhaps, perhaps it kind of made myself look bigger and maybe that figures into the story. I don't know. I don't know if it does, but I kind of have a hunch that it might from there went ahead and came down the, from the retaining wall and went down the steps and, and uh, i decided to go over there where the apple trees, the apple and the peach trees were. And, uh, You know, the fruits were very tiny, just beginning to set. I went down there and had a look around. And when I turned around and I faced east, I could look across into the neighboring property, and they had quite a few acres. And a lot of that wasn't developed. They had it, every year they had a huge garden, and there were, um, you know, there was brush and trees that was along the road there. And so... This was this was all I could see. But as I stood there, I, I became aware that there was something sitting near the road in that yard, sitting out on the grass, sitting there stock still. And it looked like it was about as large as I was. And so I decided, well, what is that thing? You know, it's kind of furry looking. I don't know what that is. I don't recognize it. It didn't look like any animal I had ever seen. And so I decided to make a beeline across our yard and get behind this large tree. This oak tree you know, would take two adults to put their arms around the trunk of this tree. We had a lot of really large trees like that. And so I don't know why, but I think, I was thinking that if I got to where I couldn't see it, that it couldn't see me and that I was hidden. And I directly went behind that large tree. Well, I tried to lean out and look from around that tree and see this animal. And you know, it proved harder than I thought it was going to be. It was just a small kid and didn't realize I had to back up, kind of step out from behind the tree to actually look. And whenever I got this good look at it, it bared its teeth at me. Now it was sitting on its haunches, so I guess it was actually a little taller than I first considered it I say haunches, but yet it didn't it didn't have haunches like a dog, for example. it was sitting right on its behind on the grass, and it looked like thighs, knees, and calves sticking up for the lower legs for the hind legs and the upper limbs were longer and they appeared to be a little more muscular and it was leaned forward. It was propped up, but it was kind of hunching a little bit forward and it had these upper arms uh, sitting down onto the grass on either side. But it was right, it was stock still. It was completely stock still. I didn't even see it blink. I got a good look at the face. It had less hair on the face, kind of bare skinned. The face was tanned. I could see that the hair looked kind of thin to me. You know, it didn't have a heavy coat of hair like, you know, I'd been around collies and things like that, animals like that that had a heavy coat and this didn't seem to have a heavy coat to me. The chest, was shaped more like a primate it made me think of kind of like a person I hadn't been around you know that many uh, primates and stuff it had an apish face it had yellow a kind of amber yellow eyes they were round Um, they were a little bit far apart it had a, a you know predominant brow over its eyes Um, the hair looked to me and from, from what I can remember, you know, this was a long time ago, but the hair looked like it was pretty much the same length all over the body. And the hair, um, came up to the face, um, just kind of had a hairline all the way around its face. In other words, the hair came up to the jaw and up the sides of the face and over the you know, up to the hairline on that that brow. Uh, I couldn't see any ears on it, and I kept thinking, you know, monkeys are supposed to have ears, and I was thinking about chimpanzees, and I didn't see any ears. The top of the head looked uh, kind of peaked. It it wasn't terribly so, but it looked peaked. I couldn't see any ears, and I didn't see ears sticking up on the top of the head like a, a dog or another animal would have. And it did not look happy to see me, and I, I had a kind of a, a chill of fear run through me when I saw that. So I began to back up, and I was afraid to turn my back on it because I did have the thought. you know, When I was that close to the tree, I thought, well, if I can't see it and it decides to come across the street, it can be behind the tree, and I won't know it. It will be close to me, but I won't know it. And when that thought occurred to me, I kept backing up, and I was going to back as far as I had to back to get back up to the house, and still, it hadn't moved, except for the mouth. Um, It didn't have big lips. It had a big mouth, and the teeth looked kind of like a chimpanzee, Um, but it just had this I don't know, this different look, and it really had a penetrating glare. It, it was unhappy to think about something, but I wasn't sure what. And about that time, I heard the door go bang on our screen door. And I knew someone had come out the door, but it, it turned out to be my brother. And this thing could see him from where it was at, although I couldn't. Um, And as soon as my brother started uh, out of the house, it took off to its um, right, and it made these terrific leaps, I don't know, three or so terrific leaps uh, into the air. I couldn't believe how fast it was and how powerful it seemed to be for its size, and it kind of went bounced, 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 and crashed into the trees and the brush there that lined the street, and there was a huge wash there that the city had tried to fix, and they spent years trying to fix it, never really got it completely fixed, but I mean, as hard as it hit those trees, and the trees just shook, uh, I was thinking to myself, gosh, you know, if, if I hit trees like that, I I can remember thinking as a kid, you know, I was thinking like a kid, if I hit trees like that, that hard with my body, my face, it would hurt very bad. And this thing, I don't know, It. I thought maybe it left, but I uh, was to find out that it didn't leave. It stayed in the area. And so my brother came on down to the car and he started in, um, older brother, he said, get in the car, mom said. I said, well, I I just saw a a monkey man. And he said, "Uh, a what? And I said, there's a monkey out here. He said, oh, you, you silly girl. I said, no, really, there is one. He said, get in the car. And he took his usual place behind dad. Dad was, you like to drive that car. And so he got in. I went around and I got in and we sat there. I tried to convince him a little bit. He didn't want to hear it. And so. Uh, when my parents came down, I got into the car. Mom got in front of me on the passenger side, and my dad got in the driver's seat. And immediately, I started in asking them. I leaned forward. The first thing Mom wanted to know, are your gloves clean? Did you stay clean? And I said, yes. And I stuck my gloves out, my hands out with my gloves on to show her that my white gloves were still white. She said, sit back. And I said, have you all seen the monkey man? And my dad and mother looked at me and my dad said, what are you talking about? And I said, uh, the monkey man, have you all seen it? He ain't got no tail. Well, my parents just said, oh, my dad said, ah, now you two sit sit back. Of course, in those days, you know, you didn't have uh, seat belts, uh, booster chairs or any of that paraphernalia that, you know, we have today. So I just sat back, and uh, our little trip was going to be kind of a short one. We pulled out of the driveway, and we, were, we went right past where I first saw the thing, drove right by it, and then we stopped at the street corner where I saw it disappear into the brush, and I said uh, to myself, I'm going to find that thing. I'm going to look for it. And I just looked, and I couldn't see anything. And I thought, you know, was that was that real? Was it really there? So we started out across the street, um, got in front of the property that was catty corner to ours. And all of a sudden, there was a big thud on the back end of the 55 Chevy. And my dad said, what was that? And, you know, these folks had big dogs. And you know, we didn't want to hit somebody's dog and we all kind of looked around and there was another bang or two on the car seemed to be on the back panel, you know, behind where I was seated. And it was, so my dad couldn't see anything in particular. My brother, I think if I remember this right, my brother said something about, I'll get out and look. My dad said, no, you stay put. So we started down this steep hill. Uh, headed north and this thing ran along beside me where I was seated in the car it ran along with us Uh, the whole time I could see the top of its head it was just smoothly going along keeping pace with us and um, the the hands would its hands because it didn't have paws its hands you know like like um, a chimpanzee its hands would reach up It didn't have any hair on the palms of the hands. I didn't see claws. It would reach up and it would smack at the window. And it was like it was trying to grab onto the vehicle and even reached up above the window some uh, as if it was trying to figure out how to, you know, grab onto the car. Well, we got to the bottom of this hill and we were to make a right turn and head back east. And there was a lot of rock rubble and a lot of brush there. And when we came down toward that, I remember thinking it will leave us alone when we get to that. No, it just sailed right over it like it was butter. It wasn't a bit of problem. The terrain didn't bother it at all. We had to slow down to make this wide turn. And when we lined the car out again, it went ballistic. It was uh, smacking and thumping uh, on the car and I was glad I had the window up. My mom's window was up too. And uh, my mom turned to look over her shoulder at, at some point there to try to figure out what was going on. And uh, it attacked her. And it really waylaid into her door. And I saw it reach up and grab at the at the uh, little mirror on the side of the car the, and um, the little side mirror. And... My dad said something like, that thing is going to break it off. And my dad decided to outrun it. And so he picked up speed and we were headed toward a low water bridge. And around this bridge, especially on the right-hand side, it was very grown up. It was all kind of brush and poison ivy and small trees. And all of a sudden, that thing, it took off running ahead of us on the side of the road on the two rear feet it ran for about half the distance and then it suddenly dropped down on all fours and I mean it went into turbo speed and it went way ahead of us and smacked into the trees and brush disappeared down in that gully and made the the trees shake Um, now all four of us saw this um I couldn't get a look down at it, I was rather kind of pulled away from the window because it was scaring me and I couldn't look down onto this creature. Um, I just figured it was some sort of a animal, maybe a a pet or something, but the face didn't look like anything you know I've looked looked at different pictures through the years and the face didn't look like it like any known ape. The body looked like it. As I said, it didn't have a tail. It had this kind of thin, scraggly, kind of looked malnourished, actually. Uh, But I think maybe it was covered in dust. So I think it was kind of hard to tell the color. Like, Just like if you have a dark dog, like if you have a a black lab and it rolls in the dust. That's kind of how it looked. Um, So to me, it was kind of difficult to remember what the color was exactly. It didn't look clean it didn't look like uh it was groomed or anything and well anyway after we crossed that low water bridge my dad drove up a distance and then he pulled off to the side of the road and he he turned around toward us and he said okay we're not going to talk about this and of course I said why not daddy it's a monkey man it it's um it's it's a monkey man and why can't we talk about it? And he said, no, no, we don't know what we saw. We're not going to talk about it. And so my brothers agreed to that. And, you know, I just couldn't understand why this was a, an amazing bit of information. And I thought that we ought to say something and find out what it was. And, well, we went on ahead to our friend's house. And, uh, of course, the first thing I wanted to say was, you know, I was dying to tell somebody that we saw this, whatever it was. Uh, but you know, my dad was there, and I didn't say anything about it. But when we got home later, um, we kind of had a powwow in the kitchen of our house, and my dad said, "We don't know what that was." And I said, uh, "Well, it was a monkey man." And he said, "Well, I don't know." why you're calling it that but we it it may be some kind of monkey I don't know and he said maybe it escaped from the Swope Park Zoo and um, he said if it's from a tropical area then it will die winter will come and it will die and then it won't be a problem for us and of course I couldn't understand why he was anxious for it to die but then I was afraid of it and for a while uh, they watched me going outside, you know, and kind of restricted my movements and all of that. Anyway, I kind of buried that thought for years. And when I was 13 to 14 years old, we had a heck of an experience. And I didn't really connect that that, that those were the two possibly the two creep same thing. I didn't connect it. And of course, I really didn't have anybody to talk to about it. I had, um, a, a good friend that I went to church with and I finally shared with her what I saw. And of course she shared that with some other girls. And then I felt like an idiot, you know, and yet And deep in my heart, I kept thinking, yes, but you didn't see what I saw. And of course, they waited until we had a community Halloween party, and then an older girl, very nice girl, she asked me if I would tell about what we saw at this Halloween party. And I was kind of, you know, I wasn't too sure that I wanted to do that. I wasn't too sure that what they, would th- what they would think. And of course, I went ahead and I told what I knew. They kept saying, well, what was it? I didn't have an idea of what it was. I said, I don't know. Um, they said, well, that was a nice story. Yeah, you made up a really nice story. So most of the kids said, well, thanks for telling us the story. That was fun. And they went home and of course, I went home and I sat and shook. So, um, I don't know, um, what to say except years passed, and I sure remembered the, uh, event that happened when I was a teenager, but, um, I kind of forgot, I pushed back the experience from when I was six, and, um, a couple of years ago, when my mom decided to move, um, she, uh, was talking with me about some things that we remembered from a long time ago. And I said, you know, once in a while I have this strange dream and it's so real. Of course, dreams can be that way. It can be very misleading, especially when you're a child and you have these, you know, memories or dreams and they get kind of confused. But seeing things as an adult, I just kept going over it and thinking, well, you know, I remember that we all saw it. So I said to her, do you have any recollection about this thing that chased our car? Well, immediately she said, yes. And I said, I haven't talked about this with anybody. And she said, well, I haven't either. I kind of forgot about it. But she said, you know, that had to be some kind of monkey or an escaped ape, a pet, or it had to be something. And I said, I don't know. I said, do you think it? Do you think it looked what you saw? Do you think it looked anything like we, what we saw on the creek bank uh, along the pulmonary tear? She said, I don't know. She said, well, this was, this one was little. And I said, yes, but if, they're, if they start out life little, I mean, we start out life small and naturally we grow. Why couldn't it have been a young one that we saw? And as we spoke about it, we decided my my dad had passed in 1980, so we couldn't ask his opinion. Um, my brother he had some dim memories about it, but didn't really want to talk about it. Um, so anyway, that's that's my early life experience with the things. And I'll be honest with you, there are times that I wished that I'd never ever seen one. And then I'm curious enough, and there's I've got enough. Um, well, experience, I guess, that I kind of save back each thing that I see, if it's a track or whatever, you know, which I go can go for long periods of time and not, not see anything that that I really think has anything to do with it. But then again, you know, when something gets into my trash or something like that and I don't have any other explanations for it, then I just kind of tuck that away in my my thoughts, and um, I have seen these creatures since then. Since we moved from Kansas City, and the property that I now have, they're there. Um, I I called you because, um, frankly, some of the things that that have been discussed on the show uh, for uh, you know the period of time that I've been listening, uh, I've found it very helpful. So one of the things that I heard was, you know, I picked this up from the program, that um, it would be a good thing to have uh, pole lights, to have the place well lit. And so we have five acres. Of course, my mother doesn't have it now. I I have it. Um, In the country, uh, there are a few neighbors dotted here and there. But when we first moved out there, we were just about the only people out there. And we started having trouble right off the bat. And we heard howls and you know, it just hair raising and we knew what it wasn't. And the two of us looked at each other and said, that's that thing, that sounds like that thing that we saw down at the Palma de Terre. So um, all I can say is I'm a very skeptical type of person. I don't like to dwell on it any more than I have to, but at the same time, I live in a place where these things frequent. Um, I've been keeping my ears open for the last 20 years. And once in a while, I will hear a neighbor say something and it will make sense to me. I'm careful about who I talk to about it and I don't jump to conclusions. To me, to think that every blade of grass that moves is a, a Bigfoot is that's a that's a huge mistake as well, and I don't want to be in that camp. You know, I don't want to sit out with them and and sing kumbaya, and I would rather that they not get close to me. But they have at times. Um, I have been so angry at times with some of the things that they do that. You know, I've thought, you know, I've, I've wished them all dead. I'll be honest with you. What are some of the myself,
1: things, Carol, that oh they my. do that, that Oh, um,
4: my. That,
1: that the you most don't disturbing
4: watch. thing, when we moved in there, uh, right off the bat, we found out that the woman that had the property before us, not the one immediately before us, because he was just a young kid. Uh, the one that had it immediately before us, he had oh, been a young fellow sowing his wild oats and liked to have parties and stuff. And his folks had gotten the mobile home and put in there. And they just wanted him to settle down and learn how to cut his own grass and pay his own bills and grow up, you know. But he was having these... Uh, Earth-shaking parties out there, From, by all accounts, from the neighbors that have, have spoken of it, That the neighbors that have been there the longest. And uh, apparently, the person who had that property before him had disappeared. It was an elderly woman. And she kept goats and chickens and things like that. And that was her livelihood. She depended on selling those to people in, in order to make it. She had a little tiny house. Um, they ended up coming in and bulldozing her house and everything back into the gully that crosses the property. Big, deep, gu- I'm talking living room sized uh, areas in that gully washed out. and you can hide you could hide just about anything um, down there. I mean <laughs> I mean, conceivably, I can see what these creatures like to hide back in there and travel through there is because it's a convenient way for them to go through there. I mean, it makes sense to me. Um, now, um, one of the first things that happened is our finding out that this woman disappeared and they never found her. They never located her body and she was quite up in years. Uh, I had spoken to some older folks that I got to know at at church and um, you know, people were very tight-lipped about this. It wasn't like everyone was laughing and chatting about Bigfoot. No, no, it, it wasn't like that at all. And I don't mean to paint that kind of picture. But, Let me ask you, you know,
1: real, real, real quick. So, can you fill us in a little bit, some details and stuff on this lady that yeah. kind of went missing?
4: Yes, um, she was um, known. By some of the older folks that have since passed away, they, you know, some of them lived to be in their 90s, and I got to know these people. Uh, I'll call one lady, Anna. She filled me in on quite a bit, and she came by and she said, "Are, are you afraid to be here? And I thought that was an odd question. I said, well, at times there are some, a lot of big animals out here her eyes got big, and she said, well, um, I don't know if you're going to try to have chickens or ducks or anything, because there was a pond there, so we had water. We had a lot of fruit, blackberries, and you know, nutting, nut trees and some fruit trees and, and stuff like that, and she just kept bringing the subject up, and then um, she told me about this woman that disappeared, and she said, you know, they never did find her. She lived alone, and she um, had her chickens and her goats and things. But then um, she had problems with something coming in the night, and it was more than she could handle. Things were coming in the night and taking her goats away. She was having uh, some of her animals killed and seemingly, you know, just killed for no real reason. The heads torn off and things like that. And so when she said the heads torn off, it made me think because we were finding rabbits and squirrels constantly with their heads um, just just find their heads, find their heads popped off, and the the animal would be gone, but the heads would be popped off. And we would find these just you know right close to our front door. Sometimes we'd find deer legs and things like this. And I leveled with her eventually. And I said, exactly what kind of predators are you talking about? Because we have seen some bobcat on the property. We did have uh, the neighbor, well, actually, not going to call his name, but the man that had the property before us had had some problems with um, these large animals that when they had their blowout parties, and they were outside, um, and you know, it's hard to know how much to believe, but apparently alcohol was involved. But they would have bonfires, and you know, it would be the, the early morning would come, and these creatures would come up out of the woods and scared some of them to death. And apparently, there was some damage to vehicles. And you know, the more I heard about the story, it just all clicked. It seemed to be this, the same information. I talked to a couple of people who had been young people who were at some of those parties, and um, they were talking about how frightened everyone was and how they quit having the parties out there because something would come up out of the woods, uh, you know, just enter, enter their space, just come right up into their space and she wouldn't say exactly what it was um i don't know that they really knew what to call it Um, but i have reason to think that it might have been the bigfoot Uh, when we got this property there was a white horse that had belonged to the previous owner and he was absolutely terrified He wouldn't uh, help clean the place up. He wouldn't agree to anything that we wanted to do that involved him coming back, removing his equipment, or, you know, he left a big stack of uh, uh, railroad timbers, things like this that we just, we would ask the realtor is he, could he come back and remove these items? And he was so afraid he wouldn't even come back and mow. He would mow along the road a little bit and, He came one day uh, after we had bought the place and he took one of the horses away. He carried it out and loaded it up. He took the good horse and he left the old horse. And I found the old horse disemboweled. Uh, It was on its back. Um, It was amazing. Nothing had really seemed to be chewing on the carcass. Um, it, It just was the... Like liver, intestines, kind of thing. That that area of the body was gone. The rest of the horse was intact. And uh, you know, I told my mom about it. I said, uh, I can't imagine. I have, you know, if it were coyotes or anything feeding on the carcass, you know, if the animal just died naturally. And then, and then other animals came in to feed on the carcass. You know, whether it's wild dogs or what, because we really don't have—we're not known for having bear around here. That's something that they—they they killed out a long time ago. They killed the bear out of Missouri, and they're currently trying to reestablish bear in Missouri. So you really don't see that many bear in Missouri. Uh, we can figure out what had killed this horse. But whatever it was, I mean, it it had split the abdomen open and it's pretty much bloodless. I mean, it it was weird. The, The carcass didn't seem to be chewed on by other animals. You know, you would think just a little bit of everything would come through there and chew on a carcass because, you know, that's a lot of food right there. Um, but it didn't, he didn't come get the carcass. Um, and so that was one of the first weird things that happened. And then, um, one morning my mom had, she had to go to work like at three o'clock in the morning and she had long commutes that she did for many years and I would stay behind. And so she, uh, went out that morning and she saw, Small little, um, almost looked like a child's barefoot tracks in a in a large puddle by our mailbox out front, and that had happened. It wasn't there, you know, the evening before, and there it was when she went to work. She could just make that out, and then when I got up, it was there, and uh, I said, "What kind of person brings their kid out in the middle of nowhere in the cold? I mean, practically had ice forming on the on the puddle still." and what what kind of a what kind of a thing is this you know look, look like a kid's little bare feet and there you know about oh six 6 inches long maybe 5 6 inches long then one morning i looked out and i looked at the property across the road from me and the uh, this was later, so the uh, the blue stem had grown up. You know, blue stem gets up over knee high. So uh, I looked out into the blue stem across the road, and I was being very quiet. Didn't didn't uh, open the screen door or anything. And I saw this humongous black thing go crawling by, and it looked like the movements were very stealthy and careful, and it looked like a giant tarantula really uh and i i actually turned away from the door and i i said to myself oh dear god i'm losing my marbles i looked back out there again and there it was crawling and i watched it until it crawled over to the nearest fence and then it it just kind of disappeared i i could not see it after that well uh It looked to me like, you know, it didn't have as many legs as a a spider. It was, I believe, one of these things, creatures down um, low to the ground, hiding in that tall grass. Well, the thing that really capped it was, a few years later, in that same area where I saw that thing crawling like a spider, one of our neighbor ladies uh, went out, and I don't know, maybe I shouldn't tell this, but... this is the reason that I have I have pause and am afraid at times because even though I have been there so many years and they haven't uh, harmed me I mean if they wanted to harm me like my brother said well if they wanted if they wanted you they could have had you so many times already if apparently they don't want to harm you but yet either this is a fact the neighbor lady went out there to her um, property line right where I had seen that thing in the past. And another neighbor who had moved in knew her. And he would walk his dog over there and uh, adjoining property, he would walk his dog over there and he would visit with her sometimes. She had gone out there for I don't know, you know, exactly what reason, but she was talking about planting a garden in that area. And she said, So I I spoke with her. She said that something enormous, black and hairy, uh, struck her uh, just suddenly, and it was great force, and she fell to the ground. She said that whenever she came to, that this huge black-haired, she said it was a monster, was bent over her, and it had her intestines and uh, was pulling her small intestines out and had her intestines in its mouth. And it was hunkered down low over her. Uh, she blacked out again. And the other neighbor happened to uh, open a store. His dog got loose and ran around and outside the fencing, and ran down there. So he chased his dog down to get her back, and he found the woman that way. Now, she told me that she was um, afraid to go around her property. She had been riding her riding mower at night. She'd use her lights and ride the riding mower at all hours. She enjoyed mowing. And she said she thought she was going to have to curb that. Uh, She spent less time outside. I actually knew that I hadn't seen her for a while. And that was when I inquired after her. And she uh, pulled up her garments and she showed me the scar. And I mean, this was a nasty, ragged scar. It was very obvious. This was... Something that had happened when they said that it had, and um, then I had another neighbor come down, and I got to be a friend of hers. I'll just call her Mary. Uh, she's deceased now. Uh, she and her husband both are. She would come down and she would say, uh, You know, you need to be careful around here, and I would say, oh yeah i'm I'm careful' She would say, no, you don't, they don't think you understand what I'm trying to say. You need to be careful. And I said, well, careful with what? I know there are a lot of snakes around here. And she said, have you ever seen anything that was larger? And I said, what, you mean like coyotes? There are coyotes all over the place out here. She said, well, yes, uh, but uh, it's not what I'm talking about. So she wanted to see a deck we had put on the back of our mobile home. And so she came down to see that. And she had a little talk with me uh, when we were out of earshot. She said, "Uh, look, everyone around here will probably say I'm crazy, but you need to be really careful down here because Everyone that's lived here for a long, long time should know. The farmers know it. There's something that prowls through here at night that follows this gully, this runoff, and you need to be aware of it. And she shook. Her lip shook. And I said, Mary, are you okay? She said, I'm trying to warn you, and I don't know how to say it. And I said, well, you know, just come right on out and say it, because it's kind of like the 500 pound you know gorilla in the room and i was trying to be funny this is kind of like the 500 pound gorilla in the room that that nobody actually acknowledges and she turned ghostly white she said no uh, i didn't say it and i said what's the matter she said you were making fun of me and i said no. Oh, no, ma'am. No, I'm not. But, but if there's a problem with something, I need to know what's the matter. And she said, no, they're real and you don't understand it. She got quite upset. She didn't want to come back after that. I've had kids in my Sunday school that have told me, you know, they're farmer's kids. And they said, you see some weird stuff. You know, when the corn gets, gets ripe they come and they come into the fields and they they fill up on that corn and then there are other times that you have the calving and calves come up missing and then um you just see things you know in the early morning light that you can't quite you can't make out you can't quite describe and it doesn't make sense so um uh, i have put in a pole light but the one that frequents my place the most now is seems to be this I do not know. I'm not going to say, oh, yes, I'm the knower of all things. I'm certainly not. I'm not a scientist or a researcher. But I've seen this one. Apparently, they grow faster than people do. Um, from what I can observe, uh, I started seeing this young female. And um I saw her from a distance, and the first time I really saw her, she was plucking tender leaves off the tips of uh, young tree branches and she was putting them in her mouth. She's completely covered in hair. She's kind of a tan color, kind of the color of dead uh, cedar needles or pine needles, kind of that shade of light brown. Uh, whereas the the biggest one that I saw seems to be all kind of black and kind of silvery. He's he's been there a long time and he doesn't seem to be aggressive. That one doesn't seem to be, but there is a I feel crazy saying this, but there's another one that's there that we think is a female. We've never seen it Uh, whole body but one time and that was at a a, quite a distance and it's a red a a deep auburn red brown color and we think it's a female and that thing is mean she has a very round face and she will just plain roar uh, at you if if you go out in the yard and she's there I mean we just we would try to avoid If we knew that she was around, of course, you can't know that it's kind of like my nephew. He came and checked things out for me recently after my mom passed away. And he took a little look around uh, and he told my brother, he said, there isn't anything out there. There's nothing to be seen. And, you know, um, my brother does believe there is such a thing as a Bigfoot because he told me he saw one. He lives down near, um, Texarkana, which is not, you know, far from the Falk area in Arkansas. And, uh, he saw a female one time and he told me all about that. And so I told him, I said, well, you know, there seem to be four of them. There seems to be, uh, and taller, bigger male and boy, he's, he's huge. Um, they're not they're not real terribly husky, but this one is very very muscular and he's kind of gotten the shading kind of makes you think of a silverback gorilla quite a bit. He's not as black, if indeed that is the same one I'm seeing because it's you know I go years at a stretch and don't see, I hear them or I find tracks, but I I don't you know it. <laughs> It's hard to explain to someone that absolutely denies that these things could possibly exist because um, it you you get into you get into muddy areas where you know they think if you saw one that you should know everything about them or that you should be you know this repository of knowledge about them and that's absolutely not how this goes down. So I told him I said, well, I think there's a an adult male and an older female because she's got gray. That really mean one. She's got gray around her face. Her face is kind of bald. Uh, like I said, that thing. I think. I think if you crossed her, I I'm, I'm afraid of it. I am. The younger female might belong to those two, and then there was um uh, another male that I've seen a few times and. When he was there a lot, I would see him up in trees. I'm talking maybe twice in 10 years. Uh, Not often. It's not like I see one of these behind every stone. Uh, But you know, you can't keep pets, the pets just disappear. Uh, Nobody around there does very well trying to keep goats or chickens or anything. they just kind of helped themselves to it. Uh, one of the things I heard on your program was really an eye-opener for me. And I I wanted to speak to, to you, if nothing else, to thank you for saying that because sharing the knowledge and helping me understand this helps me help to keep myself safe and perhaps it might help someone else to stay safe. Um, is whenever it was said that these things may hear you talking and think that you're not alone. Well, I have a habit of, I always did have a habit of, of singing or whistling or whatever I happen to be doing. I'm alone most of the time and I'll, I'll sing and talk and, you know, gosh, I'll even pray out loud. If I have a pet, I'll talk to the pet. I'll even talk to the birds. When I'm feeding the birds, I'll say, hey, hey, guys, you know, I've got your food here or whatever. And so I talk like that a lot and I thought that sounds like a possibility to me that may have been keeping me safe this time, you know, to some degree, and I might not have really realized it at the time, but maybe it kind of made them wonder uh it it is it is who else was with
3: they when you do Yeah, who
4: else was with Yeah,
3: when they do that they're not sure how many people are actually there.
4: Mm hmm. Well, when I heard that, that was a real eye opener to me because I had done it all along. This neighbor being attacked, that really, that really concerned me. Now, my mother would carry her lunch out with her and, uh, you know, she'd have it on her arm have her purse on the other arm and she would walk out through the dark to get back into the car. And usually she would try to not wake me up. If I woke up, I would flip the lights on and I would stand at the door and, you know, do that kind of thing and kind of watch out for her. But most of the time she didn't want to make a deal out of it. Very self-sufficient kind of a woman. And, well, one of them, I believe, was coming up from behind her. And, I mean, it had to be slick to do it and very quiet and stealthy to do it. But it would knock her down it was always shoving i say it because i really i never saw this but something would give her tremendous shove and she would crash in through the the skirting on the trailer and her lunch uh container would be gone and so um i put two and two together and i told her i said did something push you and she would say you know it happens so fast i'm just not even Uh, aware that it's coming i said you're not tripping no we made sure the yard was smooth we went you know yada yada we went through all of that to make sure she wasn't tripping uh that you know the path was smooth for her to get out to the car i discussed it with her uh many a time and still every once in a while something would shove her from behind and it would always be she always carried the purse on the right arm and carried her lunch on the other, and she would get up from there. She fell and tore her rotator cuff. Uh, she had injuries like that from, from falling down. It would be completely unexpected, and she wouldn't even really have an opportunity to try to uh, stop her, you know, break her fall or anything like this. So I began to get up when she did, and I would turn the lights on, on the uh, trailer itself and I would stand at the door. And every time that I stood at the door like that and I watched out, nothing happened to her. She never fell when I was watching, but then we go for a long time, nothing would happen. And then there would be a morning that she would, uh, you know, I would sleep in or whatever would happen. She wouldn't wake me, she'd go out there with her lunch. And, uh, you know, I found her nylon lunch bag one time, a pink one all torn to shreds, you know, the zipper wasn't unzipped, but the thing was literally pulled apart and the food was gone. So I told her that I thought that the young one, maybe the young male, and I didn't know, I was guessing, any of them could do it. But I told her that I felt like maybe that young male was slipping up behind her and and shoving her down and taking her lunch. Maybe, Maybe grabbing the sack from her and it was happening so fast that she never saw anything. Um uh, so um this just I seem to be rambling but this uh female that that is out there now it it appears to me that she's got an injured leg on the left side and the reason that I say this is you know I'm not inspector clouseau or anything but she drags that left foot and I think that something happened to her and she got injured And she was there, Mm, her footprint, I've got some pictures of her footprints uh, and of a handprint. And I'm not sure which one that is for sure. But I kind of think the footprint might have been hers because she was the smallest one at the time. And her foot, when I started taking pictures of her footprint, they were about the same size as my own footprint. And uh, it would be through the snow and it would always go. A path from the woods at the back, across the pasture, come up, uh, come over the fence. Sometimes they just step over the fence. Seems like it's not a problem for them just to step over the fence. Uh, but there is also another way to, you know, there are openings to get through the fence. And quite frankly, they've made openings where they want there to be openings. It's it's just unreal to see it. Uh, I couldn't have done that. I don't know how anybody could do that. It looks like someone used uh, heavy machinery to shove the, the, the fencing down. Um, and it's kind of kind of barrel shaped. It's almost like they've stepped on it to step it down to make it easy for them to pass through there. Um, and that's right at my front yard. I mean, that's no more than 30 feet from my back door. And so um, I took the advice that I should clear some of this brush and um, I decided that I first thing I did was I got rid of the dumpster because most of the time it wasn't full anyway and they were there was just a constant stream of tracks in the winter coming back and forth out of the woods and up to this dumpster and they were able to dumpster dive and get food out of the dumpster and I saw big greasy handprints on the uh, side of the dumpster on the paint that couldn't be anything else bigger than a man's hands. And, um, I put, you know, made the rational decision that, that we needed to get rid of that and be more careful with our trash. So I quit doing composting because from day one, I had put, uh, fruit peels and all of that out there Well, they were getting into it. Um, I saw where they had dug in the earth to uh, get the fruit peels and things like this. And I think that they may have come to expect it because it wasn't a great lot of food, but they were checking it regularly. And I wasn't having to turn my compost uh, at all. Uh, They were turning it for me. I mean, they were turning it up and eating things out of there as fast as I could put it in. So, um, so I quit doing that, put up the lights. I had a tree crew come out in January, this past January. And I thought to myself, okay, we'll see how this goes. And I thought when they see strangers on the property, um, because they just see me there. And I thought, well, well, this is, this is testing, you know, testing one, two, three kind of thing. And so I hired a crew. The man came out. Uh, he, brought in his brother, and they brought in the crew, and their locals, so I'm not going to say the name. Very, very nice gentleman, and did a, an excellent job for me, and I had some trees taken out that were in the front part that I claim is mine. You know, I pay taxes on the whole property, but they act like that's their, these things act like that's their property, and I try to keep my area clear and mowed, and I'm kind of afraid of them, actually, because I really don't need to be out there alone trying to mow this. They do throw hedge apples. They throw sticks. There, thank goodness, we don't have a lot of big rocks in the soil, so they don't throw uh, big big rocks at us or anything. You know, when my mother was alive, they didn't they didn't do that. I got beamed in the head one time with hedge apple, and that that hurt a lot. That was a bad situation. I got shoved down in the garden from behind one time, and I mean, there's literally nobody around there's no way that somebody could park there and come do that to me without parking way out on the other side of the bridge and and trekking through the woods to get up there to do this and i mean they are absolutely they are they're kings and queens of stealth you you already know that they you know I can understand why my family wants to say, you know, Carol's kind of, you know, kind of a half bubble off the plum because she's seeing things. They're out there. She thinks they're out there all the time. Well, it's like I told my nephew, look, I don't have one chained in my backyard. It's it's not like they can survive on a little five-acre piece of property. But they are coming through there. They're following that gully, and they're coming through there often. They're visiting farms. They're taking crops. Uh, They're getting the persimmons and the other fruits that we have on our property. I never see any of it anymore. I gave up blackberries, went down to get blackberries several times, and I got got, uh, snarled and growled at and believe me it wasn't anything that i'm aware of i've been uh camping and with my family used to go hunting together and stuff and this is not like anything else the sound is the sound they make it's not like anything else that makes such a wide variety of sounds um These are the reason that I'm. These are the reasons I'm afraid to be out there. And you know, I've I will tell you that one of them came in the house with us while my mother was alive. Uh, Thank God, my mom wasn't aware of it. She was asleep, and she hadn't been feeling well, and she had gotten overheated. We didn't have uh, air conditioning in our home, and it was very very hot that year. This has been Let's see this would be a little over three years ago. This was probably the last summer that my mom tried to live in the trailer with me. Uh, so she had the house for like in town for like three years. So it coming up on like four years. So this would be four and a half years ago maybe. That thing came in the house with us at night. I didn't have the door locked, didn't realize that I didn't have the door locked and it was morning. And I had sat up all night long trying to get ventilation into the the mobile home we didn't have air and the electricity was failing the bills are paid it's just faulty wiring and stuff like that Uh, so i actually started sleeping on the floor in the hallway because then i could hear them coming up to the door it kind of gave me a warning because i could hear them i could hear them sniff and it almost had to be them now i I won't say that them every time, but I mean, this sounds like something with lungs the size of a horse come along and sniff along where I was laying on the outside exterior wall where the floor and the wall meet on the trailer. The walls aren't that thick. They come along and sniff out. They seem to know what room you're in, in the home. Um, I know I'm just kind of spilling things out there, but those are some of the things that we've experienced. And when the one came in home, I have no idea which one it was. Uh, It came to the smaller end of the mobile home of the hallway. I wouldn't think that the biggest one could have gotten down the hallway, but one of the juveniles that's what I'm thinking it might have been. And, of course, I'll never really know. And it didn't harm us. But that thing inside there and chattering to itself occasionally as my mom snored. I know that sounds absolutely stark graving nuts. But it was in the home with us. I heard it come up the, the uh, steps. And I thought it was daylight that we were safe. I thought, well, there'll be, it's, you know, daylight now, you know, it's like six o'clock in the morning, a little bit after that. And I i finally thought, well, I'm gonna try to lie down myself. And it, you know, it cools off during the night in the country, that's the beautiful part about it. It does cool through the night. You might start out hot and miserable, but it—it it, if you can get air in there, usually it'll cool down a little bit. That thing came inside with us. It was inside the home with us. It came in the door, and the floor yawned and creaked with it like there was tremendous weight on the floor. I was fully awake when it came in. I heard the door creak. Um, Something got a hold of the, uh, you know, the storm door, and the storm door has a a certain sound to it. It's the latch on it is broken. I heard it swing that door open slowly and come inside. And I was lying on the floor in the hallway near the bathroom on the south end. And my mother was in the little bedroom there uh, on the end of a cot. And her cot had broken and she still wouldn't give up her cot. She's sitting up in the cot. And as I said, she hadn't been feeling well. And I had a sheet uh There, on my pallet, and whenever I heard it come in the door, i thought oh i can't I can't be really hearing this. this can't be happening. So I pulled the sheet over myself. This thing came inside. I could hear its body kind of like the wall covering in there is kind of like a of a, a slick vinyl coating on the walls. And if you touch it with a a brush, you know, like if you're using a, 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 a wand, like a cleaning wand on the wall or something, there's just the sound that it makes, you know, with the bristles that rub across the vinyl. That's what I heard as it slid down the hallway and it moved very stealthily. And then my mother began to, to snort and snore. And as she had a problem with that. She really needed, I guess, like a CPAP or a BPAP whatever machine like that and she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't wear it. And uh this thing was inside there with us and I didn't hear the door close behind it. And all I could think was, you know how if a wild bird gets in the house or something, how they kinda go nuts trying to get out of the house? Uh I thought oh my gosh, you know, the worst case scenario is that it can't figure out how to get out. Maybe the door closed behind it or something. Um, I didn't hear it latch. But I thought, you know, what if it goes all through the house and it gets on a rampage, or maybe it came in to try to find food. Um, it It didn't go the direction of the kitchen, which surprised me. It came right in the door and was right there at the living room uh you know stepped right into the living room and it came down the hallway where we were sleeping. My mother was asleep I was not asleep uh I had a uh a makeshift table set up there, and I had a little uh fan sitting up on that and so the it was kind of like a metal it it was a metal um Oh, one of those plug-in furnaces, um, and the, the furnace part of it didn't work so good. And, of course, we didn't need a furnace in, in the hot weather. So I had used that as kind of a little table. I put that at the top of my head in the hallway, and I set the little fan on there, and I had it oscillating so that it would blow air on her some of the time and air on me some of the time. I had my bathroom window open trying to pull in cooler air. And that thing stopped right where that uh, metal uh, furnace stand was at, and it it got quiet, and I was afraid to breathe. I could hear it clear its nose. I could hear it go kind of like, hmm. <laughs> Kind of chimp-like, uh, and it would do it whenever my mom would snore because my mom had, uh, you know, she she had off and on snoring. When the snoring began, I thought, oh, no, you know, how's it going to react to her snoring? It didn't harm either one of us, but I tell you what, I have never been so scared in my life. Um It stood right there in the hallway, right over my face, and I just kept thinking, please, God, don't let it try to step around this uh, metal table or step over it or reach down, you know, with its hand, um, because I'm right here. I'm lying on the floor, and I just had the sheet over me, and I was, you know, trying to stay calm and trying not to move. I was... I was praying hard. I don't think I've ever prayed harder than that in my life. And of course, mom was asleep and I kept thinking, please, God, don't let her wake up and see it standing in there because it was daylight enough that you could see if you opened your eyes, you could see uh, what I didn't want to believe was in there with us. But uh, then Eventually, I heard the floorboards creak and I felt the vibration of it. It was a terrible. I mean, the floor didn't creak and give like that uh, when we brought in the big appliances. You know, bringing in refrigerator and stuff didn't make the floor creak quite like that. This was a stride, something walking on two feet. Took a couple of steps because it wasn't in the hallway that far. And uh, then I heard the uh, door bump. And I heard it step out onto the wooden steps, creak, creak. And, and I heard the uh, screen door bang shut and it was gone. And I laid there, I mean, absolutely petrified for the longest time. And my mother didn't wake up through that whole ordeal and it didn't harm us. And I was just grateful When I actually went to try to stand up, uh, I had been lying there tense so long that I had some difficulty getting up. I was in in pain with it. Um, I did get myself up and the first thing I did was, you know, look down the home, see if I could see that it was truly not in the house with us, went to the door and I latched both of the doors uh, to the very best of my ability. And uh I turned on the outside porch light, although, you know, it was it was pretty good daylight by that time. And I went back in and I couldn't sleep. And when my mom woke up, she said, Well, I slept a little bit last night and I feel a little bit better. And I said, Well that's that's great. And uh she got up and got around and got got herself uh dressed and I went in the kitchen and got something made to eat. I was still kinda shaking well right there in front of the front door where the thing came in was the awfulest lot of sandy soil uh you know crumbled sandy soil loose soil it looked for all the world like somebody had thrown a a a potted cactus you know, there and and broken the potted cactus and just left the mess and removed the pot. That's what it looked like. And my mom said, what happened here? And I said, I'm going to talk to you about that. And she said, no, really, what is this? And it goes down the hallway and it was really awfully, awfully dirty. There were, I mean, dirt laying in, you know, inches of dirt laying where it had come in the door. So that was my only proof that it came into the home. But uh I know that uh, you know I, I hear that they're very curious and I see that they're very curious. Uh and I'm I'm really <laughs> I'm really tired of their curiosity. But um at the same time I'm curious about them and I do find it fascinating. I try to save information, you know, if they bring something to me, uh I Really don't want to pick it up and bring it into the house, but they have left uh, skins off of animals a couple of times, which I kind of wondered if that was some sort of a a gift. Don't know if they really do that or not. But uh, the burn pile where I always stood out at night and burned burned, uh, you know, yard waste uh, sticks and, and gathered sticks up and all that stuff. Sometimes they would. Seem to have taken that. Pick up a whole stack of sticks that I had there. The sticks would just disappear. And the sticks were back behind the camper and the shed and between the fencing where I wouldn't think that uh, your average sane person would want to come into my yard, locate me. A lot of people don't even know where I live because a lot of People don't even cut through the country there anymore. There's not even a town back there anymore. That, that one town. I'm between two towns that are defunct. And a lot of folks moved toward the biggest town, the biggest uh, town that is close to the highway. And they've pretty much abandoned that. You've got, oh, a lot of farm fields and a lot of uh, cattle and, and stuff like that in my area. But, yeah. Um, you know I jumped around i I know I sound scatterbrained i'm I'm not used to talking about this kind of stuff <laughs> very often. Um, I will say this about the tree crew back to the tree crew that came in January. the man came out he took a look around he told me how many thousands of dollars it would be because <laughs> there was a lot of work uh. Young trees had come up, uh, you know, beside the trailer and pushing on the uh, trailer itself and it had to be done. And so I thought, well, if I call them in the off season in January, this is probably going to be a good time for them. All the, you know, all the foliage is off of the trees and stuff. And you can see through there pretty, pretty good. It's, I don't know, makes me feel better. The poison ivy's kind of died back, you know, and I thought maybe they would appreciate the work in the off season because they get a lot of summer work so I called him and sure enough they were really happy to come out and do it and I'd never hired them before I'd heard good things and so their crew came out I happened to have an appointment that morning with a real estate agent because I was trying to put the property up for sale and wouldn't you know the two families that responded had little kids and they really didn't have the money that would, you know, pay pay me properly for the amount of property that was there. And I'm anxious to get out. But at the same time, I really need a certain amount of money to at least pay back. You know, I know what the property was paid, what, you know, what the purchase price was 20 some years ago. And I'd like to at least, I mean, I'd be crazy if I didn't at least want that. And I realize people are, you know, in a strain and they're starting out, but I would feel so horrible if I sold that to, you know, a young woman with kids living alone with children because I know what I know. If I were just worrying needlessly, that would be one thing, and I would need to speak to a doctor about that. But I have um, leveled with one of the naturopaths, that I uh, went to for many years. I was a patient of hers. And she said, something is stressing you out so much and I can't figure out what it is. And I said, I can't tell you about it. And she said, well, you know me well enough that you can share anything, right? And I said, I may share this with you someday. I said, I do trust you. I do, I do believe um, that you have my best interest at heart. But I I didn't go back. I was, you know, I thought to myself, um, I passed all the kind of exams that I've had in the past, you know, what, I haven't been through a lot of psych exams, but the things that I have had in the past, I've always passed everything with flying colors, and they tell me, oh, yeah, you're 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 sane. In fact, I had one doctor tell me, you are so sane, I wish you worked in my office. You're saner than the people that work for me and kind of laughed, you know? And I thought, well, you know, not everybody sees things like this and it does make you doubt yourself, uh, you know, especially if you see something over a period of time, multiple times, and then other people are being very tight-lipped and not sharing with you what they know.
1: Carol, that's that's a real good point. I wanted to uh, kind of break in real quick and just say that. Okay, please. um, You know, I would, if you feel comfortable, at some point, I'd maybe contact your natural path and share with her for two reasons. Number one, I mean, you're sharing with us now, and I can tell that it's a burden to, uh, or it's an unlift, it's unlifting a burden. It's lifting a weight off your shoulders. But mm-hmm. you might be doing more good by also sharing it with the natural path. Uh, it sounds like she would trust you. She would, you know, quite possibly uh, believe you. And you could tell her, look, this is just the way it is. This is, you know, for real. And mm-hmm. you don't know how far that might actually go into helping other people. So mm-hmm. that, that'd be my recommendation. It um, is always uh, if, you, if you have a everybody needs to have a trusted person in the world that they can confide in and even yeah. on stuff like this. So uh, that'd be my recommendation. Well, listen, um, we love the show. We love everything that you have shared with us tonight on the show. And so I think we're probably going to uh, maybe invite you back in the future for uh, some, because ad- I'm sure you have additional stuff to share with us. Uh, but we're ru- we're kind of running into uh, we're a little run, bit of a. Uh,
3: we're running short on time. Yes.
1: We're running short on time. <laughs> yes, I yes. realize that.
3: But listen, Carol, mm-hmm. stay with us just a minute you, after we stop the recording. Uh, folks. Okay. Stay tuned for the next segment.
1: Gerald, Cody, thank, thank you guys for being on the show. Gerald, we've talked in the past, actually you and I talked quite a bit, and you've had some interesting encounters, and then go ahead and bring in uh, Cody and tell us how you guys met each other and got on the topic of uh, our favorite topic here.
3: Derek, well, you know, Cody and I, we've worked together for a couple of years, and uh the topic of Sasquatch came up and usually I, I kind of refrain from doing that, but you know, doggone it.
2: What I believe and is, is how I feel, you know, and, and, and lo and behold, Cody came, came up and, uh, he's had some
3: similar experiences, haven't you, Cody? Yes, sir. Go ahead. and uh, Yeah. Well, take, so take off, buddy. a little bit about me, um, I started off hunting at a very young age. Uh, I've got almost 25 years. Um, pretty much not missing a deer season. Uh, the last 10 years, I've really kind of reached that level of what somebody would probably call an avid hunter. Uh, I'm got a pretty high success rate and that's due to me being able to spend lots of time, uh, out in the woods. Um, and during the, uh, those those times, I've had a handful of experiences um, that can't really logically be explained, um, kind of putting it on any of the known animals. And I've had them pretty much all ranging uh, since I was young, about 12 years old, all the way up to just a couple months ago when I was setting up trail cameras. Um, Pretty much have done everything except for see one, or well, have experienced everything except for actually putting my eyes on one. Uh, during this segment, I, there's three kind of events that I had that took place that I really want to focus on, mostly because it's you know for the viewer's sake, it's a little confusing to jump all the way back to when I was 12 years old and then talk about something that happened just a couple years ago. So I have a few that really kind of stick and stand out that uh, that I'd like to to touch on.
2: Yeah, I know. I tell you what, I understand how Cody feels. Uh, it's hard to, to not want
3: to start at the beginning, and go forward, because if you kind of starting at you know, at the latter end, then you know you needed to reflect back onto the when you first started to, experiencing these things. And uh, I know I have
4: that. But go ahead, Tony. Start where you feel comfortable.
3: Well, so I want to kind of throw out at least broadly what the experiences were. Two of them involved rocks being thrown at me. And another one is where I felt like I was being escorted out of the woods. Um, So starting with the first one, that'll take us back to 2012, it was in August, and I had taken a friend of mine out in the woods. Uh, this area is west of Longview in a drainage called Abernathy Creek. Uh, this particular spot is a place that me and my friends had frequented frequented over the years, riding dirt bikes, camping, hanging out. It's a nice little kind of hidden spot that's about five, five to six miles off the pavement road. It goes down a little dead end road and has a little small spur that you pull off and that's where you camp basically. It's where everybody hangs out. Uh, You're really nestled in the canopy of the trees. Uh, There's a couple trails, a couple game trails that are around and a couple fun little dirt bike riding trails. It's a really fun place to hang out. So uh, going back to this night, I had taken my, my friend, her name is Megan, took her out to Uh, this particular area just to go and hang out it was a nice summer night it was about nine or ten o'clock when we pulled up to this location I pulled my truck straight in so my tailgate is facing the road the front of my vehicle is facing uh, the woods basically so me and my friend we went and sat on my tailgate we were sitting there for probably about 15 minutes just hanging out, uh, having conversations and she had mentioned, um, she'd said, doesn't it seem like it's really quiet. And once she had said that, I kind of took note that, uh, at the time there were no bugs making any noise. There were no, uh, birds making noise, which birds still make noise at night. Um, there was no wind. It was, it was just, uh, silence that was almost deafening if anybody has ever experienced silence so quiet that uh, you could hear a pin drop that was what we were experiencing and right after i had acknowledged that it, it had gotten uh, abruptly quiet a rock that was easily the size i mean i didn't see the rock i'm just going off of the sound but this rock had to have been at least the size of a watermelon i'm talking 20 to 30 probably 40 pound rock came flying out of the woods and landed right next to where we were sitting, uh, along the tailgate side of my truck. Um, it was, so I know, I know the sound, I know different sounds. It wasn't an animal that was taking off by us. It wasn't, uh, rocks that were tumbling um because and even then we weren't near like any rock faces or anything where a rock would even just naturally tumble um you know it's all just a, a bunch of reprod which is re- reproduction timber if anybody isn't familiar with that um so there's really no reason for this to have happened but the the rock that landed it hit with so much force that i i remember feeling the impact in my chest of the rock hitting so hard. Uh, That's how I know that it was a, it was a heavy rock.
1: Um, Cody, did you hear it crashing through the branches or coming uh, through the trees or anything like that, or just went thunk?
3: Yeah, that was pretty much what it, what it was. I didn't hear any branches or anything breaking up to that point. It was just a sheer silence. And then just the biggest, just boom that, that, you know, you could really, at least i could kind of imagine happening at that particular point in time because you know i wasn't expecting anything like that um so at the time that happened uh i definitely wasn't feeling like being a mr brave guy and going out to inspect that so we just got back inside my truck and uh, and we took off for the evening but over the years uh even ever since that has happened i've tried to figure out in my mind what, uh, known animals that are here in the Pacific Northwest can pick up a rock of, you know, 20 plus pounds and, and throw it. Um, you know, I know bears can maybe roll rocks, but this wasn't, this wasn't a rolled rock. This was, this seemed like a deliberate, uh, attempt to uh, let us know that there was some something that was there that didn't really want us there.
1: So this was, yeah it definitely
3: uh, had, had some, uh, definitely had some, uh, some uh, trajectory and uh, kinetic energy when it hit the ground. It it one hundred percent did. Uh, and another thing about this particular spot is there's really. Um, nothing else around it. Once you kind of go past this little spur road that we camp at, it's it maybe only goes for another couple hundred yards and then it's a it's just a dead end. So so there was nobody that was down there at the time. Um we would have, you know, and 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 to even think about it a little bit deeper, it's like Who would be out in the woods in their right mind would be throwing rocks at somebody who is likely armed because, you know, most people driving around in the woods are armed. Um, Mm. So really, it kind of left me scratching my head in a bunch of different ways on that. But, you know, once I've kind of heard similar stories of uh, rocks being being thrown, you know, at people when they didn't see where it came from or they were out by themselves. That kind of kind of resonated with me a little bit and made me think, okay, maybe that was that was uh, something that did not want us there. <laughs> that can apparently pick up big rocks and throw them.
1: <laughs> what was your friend's reaction to that?
3: So hers was just like mine. Um, we both just, uh, you know, I wouldn't really say that there was a lot really spoke between us between then. Um, just kind of a look and like. Oh, what the heck was that? And then back in the tr- in the cab of the truck and down the road we went.
2: <laughs> that's a smart reaction.
3: Yeah, yeah, you know, it would have been nice to kind of investigate it, but I figure if it's throwing rocks that big and that accurate, I mean, who who knows where the next one was going to be landing, you know?
4: <laughs> yeah, that's good. that
3: sounds. Answer,
1: good. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Tom. Well, I was just going to say it. It's definitely sounds like an intimidation tactic to get you to leave. Um, yeah. You had you had a couple of other experiences, and there's one that where you're hunting around Trout Trout Lake. And yes, sir. What can you tell us about that one?
3: Well, so that one, uh, I have a couple. I have probably three uh, experiences in, in the one particular area, I mean, we're talking about a hundred square, hundred square yards is where all three of these kind of experiences had happened. Uh, the first one would be going back to when I was very young, I was 12 or 13, uh, hunting with my dad, pretty much just hiking in his back pocket, like any young, young guy would be doing. And while we were breaking through some brush, uh, I remember, a deep guttural growl that came maybe 10 yards in the brush ahead of us i remember it almost like like a ground shaking low rumble growl and then uh right after that a bunch of brush uh, started breaking so whatever it was had taken off and and was was you know getting away um that was i and you know i was young i thought then the whole entire time that that was that was just an experience with a bear because there are lots of bears in that area um but over the over the years, as I've progressed as a hunter, you come to learn that black bears when they're stressed out. they don't typically growl um first off, they're gonna smell you you know a mile away and not really let you get you know ten yards away, typically. And another thing is they're going to, if they're really stressed out, what they're going to do is they're going to start flapping their gums and making a kind of a popping noise. Uh, And that's how you know when a black bear is stressed out and they're they're aware of the situation that they don't want to be in. Um, So going back, uh, that happened when I was probably, like I said, 12 or 13. Uh, If we were to jump up about... um, Probably 10 years from that point, I was 23 or 24, and I had gone back to that exact same area with one of my uh, friends. Uh, my friend at the time, this was kind of his very first time going uh, camping where we were kind of off trail, uh, where the, we parked our vehicles. It's about a five-mile hike behind a, a logging company gate. So, it was kind of a trek to get in there, and you had to carry all of your own water, too, and we were planning to stay for three days. So, it was a vigorous uh, hike to get up there. But once we got up there, uh, we were planning to stay for, like, three days. Uh, Everything had been going pretty much according to plan the entire time. Once we were, I believe, on our last day, in the middle of the afternoon, we were just standing around camp, just hanging out you know doing what people do at camp and about i would say roughly 400 yards away below us we're kind of on the top of a little canyon uh down below us where there's like kind of a swampy creek uh, about four or five hundred yards away we started hearing uh what i can only describe as a like a snorting a snarling and a growling and those are all three like combined together. It was unlike I've never heard anything like it. When I first when it first popped into my head though, I was thinking wild boar. But we gotta remember this is nestled up to Mount Adams, just I'm just above uh Trout Lake, a couple miles basically. Um, kind of on the other side of the Clickitat River there. And um so this, we hear this growl, or well, we hear this this strange noise, and it begins to gain ground and start coming up to where we're located at. And the entire time, this thing is breaking branches, um, it's making this this god awful noise, um, and it's gaining ground pretty quick. You can tell when we first started it; it's a couple hundred yards away when we first heard it. Uh, but now it is getting up to the point where it is about to breach the brush line where our camp is. And then it has about another 20 yards to go. And then it's going to be right in our laps. Basically, uh, at this point, I kind of realized that I didn't have a firearm on me in my hands and, uh, something large that sounded like a predator was about to make itself known. So I, uh, turned around made probably the fastest 5 yard dash in human human uh history grabbed my rifle came back to where i was standing and whatever it was that was making those horrible noises had turned and did a a 180 basically and went running right back down where it had came from still making those noises and breaking and busting and um you know, just making a real racket on its way down. And after that happened, you know, this all, this all happened too. I would say maybe a minute, maybe a minute. It was the entire uh, sequence, 45 seconds, a minute. Um, after I was all over, me and my friend just kind of looked at each other with, you know, big eyes and, uh, he, he wasn't very experienced in the outdoors and he's asking me what that was and i was like i literally have no idea what that was it i mean it sounded like maybe a wild boar and i can't even really say that with full confidence because i've never really heard a wild boar i mean I, i'm a native up here in pacific northwest so um that was the only thing that i could compare it to well, that, it was, that was it the
1: question i had was uh, i don't think we have them in oregon but or, or not much anyway maybe a couple of areas but do you have wild hogs up there in washington
3: i really don't think so uh as far as i know my uh my dad he's a uh, he grew up in trout lake and he was also a logger there um i learned all my hunting and everything from him so he's a pretty big outdoorsman around the kind of whole trout lake west cliquitat area and he was one of the first people i asked when i got back home i was like do you know of there being any wild pigs or wild boars that are you know around mount adams area and and he said no so you know it's just from from one person but uh, i feel like he is a pretty re- reputable source that i could uh, you know right. i could get that information from and and then just thinking i'm like you know i I've been hunting these hills for a long time and I've never seen anything, um, pig related, <laughs> but I mean, you know, you know who knows they, I, they do, they migrate, you know, they really, say they're in really every well. state.
2: Yeah. They say they're in yeah. every state, but I, you know, I spent a lot of time in Skamania and Clark County and I never saw any
3: sign of wild hogs either. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is, uh,
1: Real quick, before we move on, um, your this was on the west side of Mount Adams.
3: Yeah, this is West Clickitat area.
1: Okay. Yeah, that I think that area's got some historic activity there
3: yeah it definitely does um i mean it's kind of one of those towns where every little stop and corner you go to has a little uh you know little sasquatch souvenirs and stuff you can get and kind of feel like you know a lot of the little small town places that have that they kind of have that for a reason you know the locals have been telling them telling them that they have them around
1: okay and you had an encounter i believe in Willapa hills
3: Yeah, so that was the one that I was going to lead up to, um, where I felt like I had been escorted out of the woods by something that wasn't happy of us being up there. So this goes back to 2015, uh, springtime, I believe it was April. I had a friend uh, who was looking to get into hunting. He had never done any sort of hunting himself, but had always wanted to. And during that time of year, there's really not a lot you can go after, but, uh, coyote hunting, you can do that year round here in Washington state. So I decided that, you know, we'll just go, go out for an evening coyote hunt and just kind of walk around and kind of show him the ropes, get him introduced a little bit to what hunting is. Cause he had had zero experience to it, but just really wanted to soak up whatever he could. So we took a day, we, uh, took a day and went out uh had a had a good hunt did um you know i do about a four mile loop out there four to five mile loop and on our way back we had kind of timed it so we would be walking out at dark um just because there's kind of that magic half hour uh just before dark where animals like to show up so kind of made it a point that we we knew we would be walking out in the dark once we get to this certain spot where we're about a quarter mile from my truck, we walk off of the gravel road and go through an old uh, clear cut. It's maybe, at this point, it may been about five or six years old. So it kind of grown up a little bit and was fairly thick. But there's like a little deer trail, basically, that I would walk from uh, one gravel road down to where my truck is through this old clear cut. So we get to basically the entry of this of this point in the journey where we're getting ready to uh, step off through the little deer trail to go down the clear cut. And I would say a couple hundred yards above us, we started hearing whoops. and these these whoops were very deep and they were they were <laughs> I mean they were like, Vibrate. There, I don't know how to like really describe it, but it's like they're almost sending a vibration through the air. Is how deep these whoops were. Um. Then it, I think probably three or four whoops had gone by, and we started hearing what sounded like trees breaking. Um, not not just branches. Not like it was you know snapping little small alder trees this sounded like maybe eight to ten inch trees were just being snapped while this whooping is continuing well then it begins to get closer and closer to us we had kind of slowly started walking down the, the deer trail to get to the truck we were maybe a quarter of the way through at this point and when we had heard the whoops coming a little bit closer and as it's getting closer, it's still breaking and snapping. I mean, it sounded like it was it was breaking really big, uh, kind of thick, thick-sized trees. I've heard deer and elk take off. I've heard herds of elk take off, and this wasn't this wasn't that. This sounded like uh, something deliberately displaying its might and was just breaking bigger trees that it could probably reach its hands around and start breaking. Uh, at this point, my friend was, he was very, very nervous. Um, I, on the other hand, I didn't really, I don't know. I didn't get a real, like get out of here vibe in hindsight. I probably should have been paying attention to it a little bit more. I was more, more or less interested to see how far this encounter would go. But then I, um, I saw how scared my friend was and, and felt a lot of empathy towards that because it was also his first time. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to scar this guy for life if I keep him out here any longer. So we uh, made our way back hastily back to the truck at that point. Uh, and, and that was pretty much it for that. But that had very, very much felt like a display of dominance. And something that did not want us there, like we had encroached on on his hunting ground, uh, it, it's its spot. Um, it was making it well known that it knew we were there and it didn't want us there. And I just got the great um, great thought of it of uh, just kind of escorting us out of the woods and seeing us out at that point.
1: yeah and that you know, and that's very common. We hear that quite a bit. Okay, you have one more encounter, is that right? Um,
3: you know I have uh, quite a quite a few. Um, I guess I could actually kind of talk on the most recent one that happened just a couple months ago. It's not a I mean, in my opinion, it's not one that I think is really. Um, super substantial but it is interesting at the very least that it happened so there's a particular place in the neck of the woods that I hunt in up in Willapaw Hills Um, and uh, once I'm kind of passing through this section not all the time but but sometimes you you kind of get the feeling that you have eyes on you Uh, I've never gotten you know the the deep despair feeling or anything like saying hey you need to run and get out of here but going through this spot um you just sometimes you just kind of get that feeling because it just it's just a really kind of thick um it's thick with reprod again which is reproductive timber um it's uh lots lots of underbrush so it's it's really kind of just gives you that feeling well, when I was setting up my trail camera, this is back in June, I believe, June of 2021. Uh, it was in the middle of the day, about 11, 12 o'clock. And I had got to this this spot where I was going to set, set up my trail camera, which is right in this section that i had been kind of describing here. And I... I know it isn't always the best idea because you don't know what you're getting. I don't condone, you know, anybody really going out and seeking attention sometimes like, like I do, but I, I let off a yell. Basically. I let off a big, like what somebody would call a Bigfoot call or a Sasquatch call. I just, I just yelled. I just felt it in. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to let off a yell. Cause I just kind of, I didn't feel the feeling or anything that I was being watched, but I was just kind of like, Hey, what the heck I'm going to, I'm going to just let off a really loud yell and see what happens. (laughs) Well, I let off this yell and not five seconds later, less than five seconds later, about two or 300 yards away from me, deeper out in the woods where there's, there's no roads, there's no anything. It's just, that's going out into the woods something yells back um i didn't really it sounded you know the woods are so thick that i think it was kind of muffled so i really didn't get a super great description of of the yell but something yelled back to to my yell and after it yelled something else yelled behind me another probably 3 or 400 yards away so at that point I just kind of, you know, I, I didn't, again, I didn't feel like, Oh, they're, they're out to get me or I should be nervous or anything. I just kind of brushed it off as oh, They're here. They're out today. And then just walked off, just kind of finished putting up my camera and walked on out the woods. But I know when the, the first yell that I got, there was nobody else out there that day. Um, And I know that because there's only really two ways into this spot. One is through a a gate and then the other is where I go. I kind of go a little ways from the gate and walk up. It's kind of a shortcut and there was nobody at either of them. So, so I was, I was the only person out there this time, this time of day. And, uh, I yelled something, yelled back at me and then something yelled back at what yelled at me. And I just kind of, uh, kind of accepted it as, you know, them just being out there for for the afternoon that they were just there.
1: You know, it it's interesting. That's a similar account that we got from a guy named Lee who was fishing here in Oregon in the Cascades and he'd left his favorite lures behind and he just yelled instinct, instinctively instinctively and behind him, something responded back. Now, this thing was about 30 feet away and just absolutely loud, but kind of a oh, similar gosh. thing.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that would be an, uh, quite an experience there. <laughs> well, I guess while we're talking about um, vocalizations, at this so at this very same place that I've mentioned these last two stories, um, this happened maybe three years ago. Me and one of my, uh, hunting buddies, we were walking around out in our, out in the hunting grounds about a month before, uh, sept- September, it was August. So we were in about a month before hunting season, just kind of scouting and seeing what was moving. Uh, we had got to a particular point where, you know, we were about three, three and a half miles in behind uh, the locked gate. And my buddy decided to let off an elk bugle just to see if anything would answer back to us and so he lets off the bugle and probably about 200 yards away in a really just thick uh, timber patch this this uh, yell comes back to, to, to us it responded back to our call and the reason why I say a yell is because it sounded like whatever had made the noise had vocal cords um, that were similar to like human vocal cords. It sounded like the way that a, a man would yell, sort of, but but not at the same time because it was it was really deep. It, it, sound, it started off low, like it, we thought it could have been an elk bugle, but then it kind of tapered off into more of a, um, not like a screeching yell, but, but a definite, a yell at the end, kind of a deep growl to yell. Um, and it was like, n- I've never heard anything like that before. And, uh, it definitely, it was not a bull elk that was, that was making that noise. Um, and then right after that, a yell, uh, yell occurred a couple hundred yards away from the yell, a bunch of coyotes, uh, started kind of kicking off and we're getting crazy so it was just kind of weird to, it it's like okay let's kind of play devil's advocate is this some random guy who decided on you know this day in the middle of uh of uh, august you know middle of the day in august was gonna walk in four miles and just wait for an elk bugle and just let off a, a yell to respond to us and was hanging out with a couple coyotes at the same time. I just, I don't see how, how any of that makes sense. Um, And so once the coyotes were kind of getting all crazy, we decided to kind of go and walk around. We kind of had to walk out that direction anyways. And when we had got out there, uh, two of the coyotes were on the road. And so I took one out of the equation and that kind of pretty much distracted, you know, distracted us. Uh, from the yell that had happened in the woods and we just kind of carried on after that to this day I still kind of you know have a quit you know we kind of bounce it off each other like what was that you know and we heard that yell and me and him are both on the same page that that was a sasquatch that that yelled at us Um, I think he was just mad because maybe we bugle better than he does
1: yeah no not a bad point I think they do respond to us making noises, sounds. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Can't really know what the purpose is, but I do think they do do that.
3: I've also heard that there's a lot of association um, with elk hunters in particular with them. And so it almost kind of leads me to believe that they they probably follow the elk herds and stay fairly close to them.
1: Yeah, that would make sense. sense. Sure. Yeah, maybe
3: hearing some guys bugling after something that they're after too, they might not, they might not, you know, take too kindly. And I guess, you know, since we're on the subject, there is something that I've actually wanted to, um, I thought about writing into, you know, hopefully you guys don't mind, I name drop Steve Eisel, but I thought about emailing him this story because I really have no uh, explanation for it. So this happened two years ago, uh, in December, it was the second to last day of archery elk season. And this is again, this is in Willapa Hills. This is in my hunting grounds. Um, the, that we've been having this conversation about, uh, I was h- going around on my evening hunt. <clears throat> I hunt usually in the late season. I hunt solo too. I'm hunting by myself. Uh, so i'm coming up on the last half hour of the evening hunt and i spot a cow elk in this particular area that i'm hunting it's either sex during late late archery season so i can take a cow if i want at this point i was ready to take a cow so i made a hunt on this cow elk i got with you know within my my shooting distance uh put a good shot on her um it was it was good enough to the point that i could i could actually see the blood trail like as she was creating it as she was running off into the thicker stuff so as she took off i heard um you know it was probably a minute or so after i'd released my arrow i heard what sounded like an elk crashing down uh, anybody that's done archery elk hunting long enough they know the kind of infamous crash the elk make when they when they, when they fall down so I heard her crash. <clears throat> Again, this is about 5 o'clock, um, probably 4.30-ish in the, in the evening uh, in December. So it's right at dark. <clears throat> I heard her crash, and I, in my head I'm like, okay, I got to knock down. So now I need to go uh, get my friends, and then we're going to come back here, and we're going to start packing with meat. So I, I made the mistake and didn't go in after her at that point because I, I just figured she was already down. So I was going to try to kill as much time as I could to go and um, get all my friends together, which was going to take a couple hours anyways. So I go back to town. Uh, I got three of my friends together. We came back. When we got back, it was about two hours later. It was about two hours after I had shot, uh, shot the cow elk. So we... <clears throat> we get up in there, uh we get on the blood trail which i which i said it was i mean it was a very large blood trail um it was one of the uh i guess I'll say the word gnarly one of the gnarliest blood trails that i've actually tracked in my in my hunting career, and it went for probably a good hundred and fifty yards. Once it had got into the thicker, where she was in the thicker um, reprod, uh, you could actually see pools of blood where she'd like stopped and, you know, maybe laid down, bedded down. Well, we got to this one really good pool of blood, and then after that, there was nothing. There were no drops of blood there were there wasn't even speckles of blood after this one big pool so oh and another another thing while we were searching for my for my elk uh, me and my buddies we had all kind of split up and we were all kind of fanning out and going different directions and kind of doing a grid pattern of this whole area uh my uh uh he after we had all you know concluded and gotten back together he was like hey which one of you guys uh, screamed and we all me and the other two friends looked at each other and we're like nobody was screaming he whistled back and forth a couple times just to know where we were but nobody <laughs> nobody screamed he's like i 100 percent heard a scream while we were while we were out there it came you know he pointed in the direction that, that just goes deeper out into the woods it wasn't like he was pointing the point i mean we we're far enough away from the road you're not going to hear anybody screaming on the road that was a good you know mile and a half away as the crow flew so <clears throat> i that one really has left me puzzled what i i've kind of actually i took that whole experience put it down on a piece of paper on um a facebook post and put it out to a big uh, elk hunting forum that i'm in and uh, i had a few guys that say you know there is the possibility that when she fell she could have possibly um her blood could have possibly clotted up and then she was able to regain consciousness and then be able to take off and not leaving any more any more blood or you know anything like that and i don't know it's just it's either either direction it's hard for me to kind of wrap my head around you know what could have happened there because i have had multiple sasquatch experiences out there uh, and i've heard you know several stories of of them walking away with uh with people's elk So I, I don't know. I don't know about that one. I think that one could be either, or it just, it seems really far fetched that, you know, after an animal has been hit with a, uh, something as devastating as a broadhead and is actively, um, you know, having arterial bleeding, it's hard to think, you know, that that thing is going to be able to just, you know, lay down, sleep for a couple minutes and then be able to pop back up and not leave any more blood or or anything like that but it had, seriously it had gone from one of the the biggest blood trails that I'd ever seen we'd followed it for about 150 yards to absolutely nothing
1: yeah it's uh i think it's unlikely Cody we're going to have to have you back on buddy and uh I really appreciate you taking the time today to Uh, come on and and share with these uh, share with us these uh, very interesting stories so thanks a lot very good stuff yeah absolutely yeah Trout Lake and Abernathy Creek and Willapa Hills just to mention a few so again uh, huge thanks to you Cody Gerald thank you for being on as well and uh, yes absolutely we're gonna have to have have you guys on again in the future
3: yeah sounds good i'm about to uh, kick off my elk season here so maybe i'll have a couple more new stories to tell you
1: <laughs> we're looking forward to it absolutely <laughs>
0: This story, about 40 minutes long, is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the story, The Hairy Giants of British Columbia, told by J.W. Burns, government Indian agent teacher, Chehalis Indian Reserve, British Columbia, and set down by Mr. C. V. Tench, illustrated by T.T. T. Muneo. This challenging article will undoubtedly arouse the derision of skeptics, both in Canada and elsewhere. After many years of patient investigation, Mr. Burns, a responsible government official, shares the firm belief of his Indian charges that, deep in the unexplored mountain wilds of British Columbia, there still lurk a few scattered survivors of the mysterious Sasquatch, primitive creatures of huge stature, covered from head to foot with coarse hair who have figured in red-skin legends for centuries. Mr. Burns recounts a number of seemingly well-authenticated stories of encounters with these uncanny wild men who carefully avoid all contact with civilization. Scientific expeditions had sought them in vain, and it is generally supposed that, if they ever existed, the giants have long since become extinct but the Indians remain unconvinced. Before setting forth Mr. Burns' narrative, I should like to make it clear that he not only holds a highly responsible government position as an Indian agent, but is keenly interested in the subject of the hairy giants, which he has studied for a number of years. He is confident that his charges are perfectly sincere in their beliefs, They are not in contact with tourists and have no reason whatever to cook up fables for the benefit of the unsophisticated. Moreover, the Indians are reluctant to talk about the Sasquatch, even to him, a friend of long-standing, and absolutely refuse to discuss the matter with all white strangers. They are simple-minded, unimaginative folk. The invention of so many different stories of encounters with the wild men— would be quite beyond their powers. "'I am convinced,' said Mr. Burns, "'that survivors of the Sasquatch "'do still inhabit the inaccessible interior "'of British Columbia. "'Only by sheer luck, however, "'is a white man likely to sight one of them, "'because, like wild animals, "'they instinctively avoid all contact with civilization, "'and in that rocky country "'it is impossible to track them down.' I still live, in hope, however, of some day surprising a Sasquatch, and when that happens, I trust to have a camera handy. And now for my story. Utterly terrified, the Indian raced madly toward the Chehalis River, where his dugout canoe was moored. In pursuit lunged a giant of a man at least eight feet in height and broad in proportion. He was stark naked and covered from head to toe by a thick, growth of black woolly hair. In his fright, the Chehalis Indian, Peter Williams, completely forgot the rifle he clutched. He did not attempt to stop and fight it out. When he suddenly caught sight of the monster standing on the summit of a huge boulder, all reason fled, to be instantly supplanted by sheer panic as the giant growled and sprang toward him. Heedless of the tangled undergrowth, the Indian plunged wildly on, Occasionally jerking his head around to gaze affrightedly at the horror behind. Reaching the riverside, he gave a frantic heave, and the dugout canoe shot out into the turbulent stream. The water, however, did not daunt the giant. He plunged forward in hot pursuit. The instant the bow of the dugout scraped the opposite bank, Peter Williams leaped ashore. The giant was now almost in midstream, swimming strongly. Once more, the red man took to his heels. Well-nigh-dazed from exhaustion he finally reached the frame shack that was his home. Frenziedly he herded his wife and children inside, bolted the door, and barricaded it with every article he could lay his hands on. Then with his rifle at the ready he tremblingly awaited the giant's arrival. Presently there came the sound of a heavy body forcing its way through the brush. Darkness had not set in yet, and, peering through a crack, Peter Williams took a good look at the monster. It was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, one of the well-nigh fabulous hairy giants which, according to the Indian belief, still inhabit the unexplored wilds of interior British Columbia. Growling deep-chestedly, the huge figure made a circle of the hut. Then, putting one shoulder against a wall, he pushed with such tremendous force that the flimsy dwelling shook. The timbers creaked and groaned so loudly under the strain that the Indian feared the roof would collapse and whispered to his squaw and children to crawl under the bed. They promptly obeyed, leaving their terrified lord and master to face the monster alone. To Peter's vast relief, however, the Sasquatch failed to force an entry after prowling gruntingly around the house for several minutes. He stalked away into the bush. Next morning the Indian found the giant's tracks in the mud outside the shack. The footprints measured twenty-two inches in length. The foregoing is a condensed account of what Peter Williams later told me took place. I have known him for a good many years. He is intelligent, honest, and trustworthy. Speaking personally, I do not question the truth of his story, for it is only one of many reports concerning the mysterious Sasquatch or wild giants that I have heard firsthand from Indians under my official care. The incident happened, moreover, in my own district, the Saskaha, area of British Columbia. The word Saskaha means place of the wild men. Indians won't talk. BEFORE PROCEEDING TO RELATE FURTHER INCIDENTS CONNECTING WITH THE MYSTERIOUS SASQUATCH, I OUGHT TO EXPLAIN THAT FOR THE PAST FIFTEEN YEARS I HAVE OCCUPIED A GOVERNMENT POSITION AS INDIAN AGENT STATIONED AT THE CHEHALIS INDIAN RESERVE, SOME SIXTY-ODD MILES FROM VANCOUVER, BRITISH COLUMBIA. MY CHARGES ARE ALSO MY FRIENDS, AND BECAUSE I HAVE ALWAYS RECIPROCATED THEIR REGARD, ENDEAVORING TO HELP THEM IN EVERY WAY POSSIBLE, the Chehalis Indians gradually took me into their confidence and eventually told me all they knew about the Sasquatch, a subject never previously discussed with any white man. Being naturally of a proud and somewhat aloof nature, they are extremely sensitive to ridicule, and so avoid all mention of a topic which experience had shown merely exposed them to derision. If a white stranger inquires about the Sasquatch, he is invariably met with the guarded reply, No, white man won't believe. He make joke of Indian. Although I have never personally encountered a Sasquatch, there is ample proof that hairy giants formerly inhabited the Chehalis district in considerable numbers. Its ancient name, A Place of the Wild Men, was until recently accepted as an echo of primitive superstitions, but the accidental discovery a few years ago of two crude cave dwellings confirmed the Indian legend that, the later troglodytic period of this region, was the abode of human beings of huge stature. Survivors of this prehistoric race, the red men believe, still lurk in the interior vastness. Indian legends tell of two tribes of Sasquatches who dwelt in this section of the country, they were deadly enemies and practically exterminated one another, fighting hand to hand with war-clubs on the mountain sides. Skeptics may laugh at the idea of primitive man in the shape of eight-foot giants still living in British dominion, but nevertheless I have collected a good deal of evidence tending to prove that the Sasquatch may not be extinct. The Indians are by no means unintelligent, nor are they prone to imaginative lying, and when a keen-witted young woman such as Emma Paul declares that she saw one of the hairy giants close to her home one evening last summer, I feel convinced that she was telling the truth. Here is her story. I saw the Sasquatch a few yards from the house. I was standing by the door at the time. He was watching me closely, and I had a good look at his face, He was very big and powerful in appearance. Other members of my family were present, and they saw him. We went inside and bolted the door, but he prowled around the house for some time. Since then we have often heard the wild men. One of them used to rub his fingers over the window-panes. Only a few nights ago a Sasquatch tramped loudly around the house. All of us heard him, and so did the white carpenter who lives next door. The Indians stoutly maintain that each summer the remnants of the Sasquatch hold a sacred gathering near the summit of Morris Mountain, which commands a wide view of the vast solitudes all around. Prior to this rendezvous, the Giants send scouts out to make certain the area is clear. It is these scattered investigators the Red Men believe that individual Indians have encountered Anthropologists all over the world are naturally keenly interested in the alleged existence of these hairy giants, and about two years ago the University of California sent a party into the British Columbia wilds in search of the Sasquatch. They were equipped for a lengthy expedition, and, knowing of my interest in the subject, came to my home and sought my assistance in enlisting the aid of the Indian guides and packers the expedition that failed. In spite of the fact that they were offered ten dollars a day and all found, not one of my Indians would volunteer for the trip, declaring that such a quest was doomed to failure. The Sasquatch detecting the approach of so many strangers would immediately go into hiding. The Americans therefore set out without native helpers, but in less than a fortnight they returned, gaunt and trail-weary. Needless to say, they had discovered no trace of the wild man, and they vowed that, so far as ordinary white folk are concerned, the route to the top of Morris Mountain was utterly impassable. They were very disappointed at their failure, of course, and a few days after their departure, ironically enough, another of my Indians claimed to have encountered a Sasquatch. This Indian, an old man named Chehalis Philip, had previously told me that in his younger days he often saw the hairy giants. On this particular occasion he was fishing for trout in Morris Creek, a tributary of the Chehalis River. His canoe was gliding quietly along the sluggish mountain stream, close to the rocky terraced bank, when, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a tremendous splash within a yard of the canoe, almost swamping the frail craft." Startled, Philip hurriedly glanced upward to observe a huge man covered with hair leaping down the steep declivity with the agility of a panther. Under one arm he carried a bulky object that proved to be another boulder. Reaching a point of vantage, the giant deliberately slung the big stone straight at the now thoroughly scared Philip, missing the canoe by inches. Believing that the Sasquatch was about to dive into the water and attack him, the old Indian cast off his lines and paddled frantically away. Not all Sasquatch are unfriendly, however. Apparently their individual characteristics are just as strongly developed as those of ordinary mortals, as witness what an Indian named Henry Napoleon has to say. "'The first time I found out for sure that the wild men do still live around here,' Henry told me, I did not see any of them. Some years ago— Three other young men and myself were picking salmon berries on a rocky slope. In our search for fruit we suddenly stumbled upon a large cave in the side of the mountain. This discovery greatly surprised us, for we thought we knew every foot of the mountain, but had never heard of a cave in that vicinity. Just outside the mouth of the cave lay a big boulder. We peered inside the opening but could not see anything. Gathering some pitchwood, we lighted it, began to explore. Before we got very far from the entrance, however, we came upon a sort of stone house or enclosure. We couldn't make a very thorough examination, for our pitchwood torches kept going out. Finally, we left, intending to return in a couple of days and continue our search. Old Indians to whom we told the story "'warned us not to venture near the cave again "'as it was undoubtedly occupied by the Sasquatch. "'But we paid no attention to them "'and went off to examine the cave once more. "'To our great disappointment and surprise "'we found that the big boulder had been rolled into its mouth, "'fitting as tightly as if it had been made for the purpose, "'and we were quite unable to move it. "'Some years later I was out hunting deer in the same neighborhood. Just about dusk I saw something I took to be a big bear standing on its hind legs, but when I stopped and raised my rifle, the creature spoke in a tongue that very much was like my own. He invited me to come closer, and when I did so, I saw that he was a man over seven feet tall. His body was very hairy. At first I was terribly scared, but his eyes looked kind, and— he asked me to sit down and talk. He told me that during the winter the Sasquatch sleep like bears and that their home is on top of Morris Mountain where no Indian or white man could ever find them. They live on roots, fish and meat, just like us Indians. Then suddenly it grew dark and he slipped away. Another of my Indians, Charlie Victor by name, tells the following story of personal contacts with the Sasquatch. THE WILD WOMAN There are now only a few of the wild giants of the mountains, said Charlie, in his terse Indian dialect. They are rarely seen and seldom met, but some still live in the mountains around here. I have met them on several occasions. Some of the times I saw them, nothing happened. We stood and looked at one another, but the last time was not a happy meeting. It happened this way. I was hunting in the mountains and had my dog with me. One day I came out on a plateau where there were several big cedar trees. The dog rushed up to one of the trees and began to growl and bark. Looking up to see what had excited him, I noticed a large hole in the trunk about seven feet from the ground. The dog kept jumping at the tree and scratching, looking around to me to lift him up. When I did so, he dropped down inside the hole. Then there was an awful noise. I heard the dog growling and barking and something screaming. I thought my dog must be fighting a bear and holding my rifle ready, called to him to drive the animal out. A moment later something shot out of that hole. I fired, and the creature fell to the ground. I looked at it, and then I felt sick, for what I had shot looked like a naked white boy about twelve years old. He was bleeding from a bullet wound in his leg, but when I stepped forward, he twisted away and let out a wild scream. From deep in the trees came a reply. Nearer and nearer came the voice, and every now and again the wounded boy would cry out as if calling directions. Then out of the forest came a Sasquatch woman. She was about seven feet tall, big built all over, and her skin was as dark as mine. Her long, straight hair fell to her knees. She looked so big and strong that I I am sure, if she had laid hands on me, she could have broken every bone in my body. When I saw her, I felt scared and "'Instinctively I lifted my rifle "'in case I had to defend myself. "'The wild woman ran toward the boy, "'bent over him, "'and then turned on me savagely, "'her eyes like balls of fire. "'And in the Douglas dialect she growled, "'You have hurt my friend!' "'I explained in the same language, "'I am part Douglas myself, "'that I had mistaken the boy for a bear "'and was very sorry for the accident. "'Anyway, I pointed out that he was not badly hurt. She made no reply, but, picking up the boy as easily as if he weighed nothing, lifted him to her shoulder and strode out into the woods. I do not think the boy belonged to the Sasquatch people, because well, he was white skinned, and she called him her friend. No, she must have stolen him as a child, or run across him in some other way. Another well-authenticated Sasquatch encounter happened last September, when Indian hop-pickers were having their annual picnic near Agassiz, British Columbia. It was alleged that a young Indian man and maiden, named respectively William Point and Adeline August, both graduates of a Vancouver high school, had walked some distance from the picnic ground when they suddenly came across a Sasquatch. Hearing of the occurrence, and anxious to verify it, I wrote to William Point for particulars. Here is his reply. Dear Mr. Burns, I have your letters asking, is it true or not that I saw a wild giant at Agassiz last September, while with the hop-pickers there? It is true, and the facts are as follows. Adeline August and myself started for her parents' house, which is about four miles from the picnic grounds. WE WERE WALKING ON THE RAILROAD TRACK WHEN ADELINE NOTICED SOMEONE WALKING ALONG THE GRADE COMING TOWARD US. I ALSO SAW THIS PERSON, AND FIRST THOUGHT IT ANOTHER MAN WALKING THE TRACKS AS WE WERE. BUT AS HE CAME CLOSER WE NOTICED THAT HIS APPEARANCE WAS VERY STRANGE, AND ON COMING STILL CLOSER WE HALTED IN AMAZEMENT AND ALARM. WE SAW THAT THE MAN WORE NO CLOTHING AT ALL AND WAS COVERED WITH HAIR LIKE AN ANIMAL. WE WERE BOTH VERY FRIGHTENED. I picked up two large stones with which I intended to use on him if he attempted to molest us, but within fifty feet or so he just stopped and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, with arms so long that his hands almost touched the ground. His eyes were very large, and as fierce as a cougar's. The lower part of his nose was wide, and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave him a very repulsive appearance.' Then my nerve failed me, and I turned and ran. I looked back as I ran, and saw that he had resumed his journey. Adeline August had fled first, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until we reached the picnic ground, where we told the story of our adventure. Other Indians who were present said that the monster we encountered was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, a tribe of wild hairy giants, now almost extinct, who live in the district in tunnels and caves. Assuring you of the truth of this, yours truly, William Point. I do not doubt the authenticity, as he is both intelligent and well-educated. And now let me illustrate how extremely sensitive the Indians are regarding the Sasquatch, and how indignantly they resent their word being doubted. The Old Chief Broadcasts on May 23, 1938, a festival known as Indian Sasquatch Days was held at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Having obtained special permission from the Department of Indian Affairs at Ottawa, I took several hundred of my charges to the event. Unfortunately, in his opening speech over the radio, a very prominent official of the British Columbia government made a bad slip, thus offending all the Indians present who understood English. After a few preliminary remarks, this personage went on, Of course, the Sasquatch are merely legendary Indian monsters. No white man has ever seen one, and they do not exist to-day. In fact, thereupon his voice was drowned by a great rustling of buckskin garments and the tinkling of ornamental bells as... In response to an indignant gesture from old Chief Flying Eagle, more than 2,000 red men rose to their feet in angry protest. Chief Flying Eagle then stalked across to the open space where the speaker stood, surrounded by important dignitaries and others. Absolutely ignoring the entire groups, Chief Flying Eagle turned to the microphone and thundered in excellent English. "'The white speaker is wrong!' To all who now hear, I say, some white men have seen Sasquatch. Many Indians have seen them and spoken to them. Sasquatch still, all around here, I have spoken. The chief then strode back to his place and signed to the other Indians to sit down, leaving behind him the government spokesman whose face was exceedingly red. I was one of the party gathered about the microphone and immediately said a few words over the loudspeakers to appease the angry Indians. I corroborated Chief Flying Eagle's statement that white men have seen Sasquatch, adding that, although in sadly reduced numbers, Sasquatches are still believed to inhabit the vast mountain solitudes of unexplored British Columbia." During the many years I have been delving into this fascinating subject of the hairy giants of British Columbia, I have come into possession of much well-authenticated data. The oldest written record I have so far discovered is that of the late Alexander Caulfield Anderson. He was a noted explorer and pioneer adventurer, and Caulfield, a suburb of West Vancouver, is named after him. In the year 1846, when an inspector for the Hudson's Bay Company, Anderson was sent out by that company to establish a post in the then-Virgin Wilderness in the vicinity of Harrison Lake. There was no doubt that he frequently encountered Sasquatches, because he mentions the wild giants of the mountains several times in his official reports. For the most part, he writes that they are as wary as wild animals, but on one occasion he and his party had to retire before a bombardment of rocks hurled by a number of Sasquatches entrenched on a hillside. Not until three years ago, however, did I actually meet and talk to a white man who had seen a Sasquatch with his own eyes. That man was a young mining engineer named Roy King. At first Mr. King was reluctant to relate his experience, fearing ridicule, but after I had convinced him of my own firm belief that the hairy men still inhabit certain sections of British Columbia's wildest regions, he told me the following. The White Man's Story Some two weeks previously, entirely alone, he had been prospecting in the mountains adjacent to Harrison Lake. He had established his solitary camp beside a likely-looking creek that turned its turbulent way through the rocky walls several hundred feet in height. One evening, on his way back to camp, after a day of prospecting, he was walking as he came within view of his campsite. He looked down and was surprised to see something moving. Thinking that it was probably a thieving grizzly bear, King stopped and unslung both his rifle and his binoculars. Focusing the powerful glasses, he was startled by the image they brought clear, and close to his eyes, a giant of a man entirely naked and excepting for a small space around his eyes, covered from head to foot with black fuzzy hair. The monster was interestedly examining the prospector's personal belongings. The young man admitted that at first he thought he had been too long alone in the wilderness, and that he was seeing things. Then it slowly dawned upon him that, through the glasses, he was actually getting a close-up of the supposedly mythical Sasquatch. Thereupon he did the most sensible thing he could think of, stood perfectly still and quiet, watching through his binoculars, until, a few minutes later, the giant strode off. Roy King then made his way slowly and cautiously down to his camp, He found that most of his possessions had been moved, but nothing had been taken away. Mr. King's story bears out what the majority of the Indians maintain, that the wild giants are neither belligerent nor thieves. On occasion, however, they will purloin food when hungry. Last fall an Indian named Paul and his squaw were returning from a duck hunt, carrying some half-dozen waterfowl they had bagged. Suddenly, a Sasquatch stepped quietly out of the thick bush on one side of the trail and stood directly in their path. Utterly terrified, Paul and his wife dropped the birds and took to their heels. Some time later, accompanied by other Indians, they cautiously returned to the spot. But the Sasquatch had gone, and so had the ducks. Another Indian, named Frank Dan, who asserts, that he has seen the Sasquatch on many occasions, told me that one night, peering half-hidden from a window, he watched a Sasquatch take two salmon from the branches of a small tree beside the house, where he, Dan, had hung them to keep fresh until morning. Again, on a Sunday about a year ago, when most of the natives were at church, a Sasquatch entered the village, and saying that all was quiet and nobody apparently about, went into one of the houses. An Indian who had stopped at home saw the wild man come out, burdened with loaves of bread and smoked salmon. Perhaps the strangest and most terrifying experience any Indian has had with a Sasquatch is that related by an Indian woman named Seraphine Long. Now very old, Seraphine claims that many years ago, when she was a young girl, She was kidnapped by a wild giant, and lived in the haunts of the hairy monsters of the mountains for close to a year. She has told me the story many times, and I have set it down as nearly as possible in her own words. What Happened to Seraphine Long Before doing so, however, I should explain that among the natives of Canada, both Indians and Eskimos, there is a shortage of marriageable girls. Probably a similar condition exists among the Sasquatch, thus explaining the action of the wild giant in this case. I should also like to add that although her present-day photograph hardly bears this out, the evidence of her contemporaries goes to show that, in her girlhood, Seraphine Long was considered one of the most comely girls in her tribe. Here is her story. I was walking down towards home one day many years ago carrying a big bundle of cedar roots and thinking of the young brave Kwalak, Thunderbolt. I was soon to marry. Suddenly at a place where the bush grew close and thick beside the trail, a long arm shot out and a big hairy hand was pressed over my mouth. Then I was suddenly lifted up into the arms of a young Sasquatch. I was terrified. Fought and struggled with all my might. In those days I was strong, but it was no good. The wild man was as powerful as a young bear. Holding me easily under one arm, with his other hand, he smeared tree-gum over my eyes, sticking them shut so that I could not see where he was taking me. He then lifted me to his shoulder and started to run. He ran on and on for a long time, up and down hills, through thick brush, across many streams, never stopping to rest. Once he had to swim a river, and then perhaps I could have gotten away, but I was so afraid of being drowned that I held on tightly with my arms about his neck. Although I was frightened, I could not but admire his easy breathing, his great strength and speed of foot. After reaching the other side of the river, he began to climb, and climb. Presently the air became very cold. I could not see, but I guessed that we were close to the top of a mountain. At last the Sasquatch stopped hurrying, then he stooped over and moved slowly, as if feeling his way along a tunnel. Presently he laid me down very gently, and I heard people talking in a strange tongue I could not understand. The young giant next wiped the sticky tree gum from my eyelids and I was able to look around me. I sat up and saw that I was in a great big cave. The floor was covered with animal skins, soft to touch and much better preserved than we preserve them. A small fire in the middle of the floor gave all the light there was. As my eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I saw that Beside the young giant who had brought me to the cave there were two other wild people, a man and a woman. To me, a young girl, they seemed very, very old, but they were active and friendly, and later I learned that they were the parents of the young Sasquatch who had stolen me. When they all came over to look at me, I cried and asked them to let me go. They just smiled and shook their heads. From then on I was kept a close prisoner. Not once would they let me go out of the cave. Always one of them stayed with me when the other two were away. They fed me well on roots, fish, and meat. After I had learned a few words of their tongue, which is not unlike the Douglas dialect, I asked the young giant how he caught and killed the deer, mountain goats and sheep that he often brought into the cave. He smiled, opening and closing his big hairy hands. I guess that he just laid in wait, and when an animal got close enough, he leaped, caught it, and choked it to death. He was certainly big enough, quick enough, and strong enough to do so. When I had been in the cave for about a year, I began to feel very sick and weak and could not eat much. I told this to the young Sasquatch and pleaded with him to "'Take me back to my own people.' "'At first he got very angry, as did his father and mother, "'but I kept on pleading with them, "'telling them that I wished to see my own people again before I died. "'I really was ill, and I suppose they could see that for themselves, "'because one day after I cried for a long time, "'the young Sasquatch went outside and returned with leaf full of tree gum.' With this he stuck down my eyelids, as he had done before. Then he again lifted me to his big shoulder. The return journey was like a very bad dream, for I was light-headed and in much pain. When we recrossed the wide river, I was almost swept away. I was too weak to cling to the young Sasquatch, but he held me with one big hand and swam with the other. Close to my home he put me down, and gently removed the tree-gum from my eyelids. When he saw that I could see again, he shook his head sadly, pointed to my house, and then turned back into the forest. My people were all wildly excited when I stumbled back into the house, for they had long ago given me up as dead. But I was too sick and weak to talk. i just managed to crawl into bed, and that night I gave birth to a child. The little one lived only a few hours, for which I have always been thankful. I hope that never again shall I see a Sasquatch. That is Seraphine Long's story, the only one on record of a Sasquatch ever abducting an Indian girl. I could relate more instances concerning the wild giants of British Columbia, seemingly well-attested cases that I have collected over a period of many years. But in this article... The few I have recounted must suffice. Is it possible that primitive hairy giants still inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Scientists and others may scoff at the very idea, but many Indians are sincerely convinced that Sasquatch, or at least a few of them, live to this day in the vast unexplored interior. And, like the Indians, I also believe... Copyright, J.W. Burns, Indian Agent Chehalis Indian Reservation. Published in The Wide World, a magazine for men. January, 1940, Volume 84, Number 502. The illustrations and photographs of the witnesses and area were not such that I could scan them. This is the end of the story.
2: I Met the Abominable Snowman, a true story by Dr. George Moore, M.D. Exclusively published in Sports Field, May 1957, readers will enjoy this eyewitness novelistic account by the first American to meet face-to-face the mystery animal of the Himalayas, the Yeti. Even without Moore's chance meeting with the mysterious creatures of the Himalayas, the author of this account would have a remarkable story to tell. In October of 1952, Dr. Moore, his wife and daughter, arrived in Nepal. Dr. Moore, as Chief of the Public Health Division of the U.S. Operations Mission under the Foreign Operations Administration, was the public health advisor to the new Nepalese government that had thrown the doors of the land open to foreigners for the first time since 1816. Dr. Moore pioneered the health program of a country suddenly plummeted into the 20th century. His duties took him on extensive trips into towns and villages, never before seen by white men. Moore became fascinated by the customs and habits of the Nepalese people, a people quick to win his lifelong admiration and respect. After his two-year tour of duty expired, Moore inactivated his commission in the Public Health Service and is at present director of the San Juan Basin Health Unit in Durango, Colorado. The story begins. MONSOON! Heavy gray clouds had been drifting northward from Calcutta for days that June in 1953. Already early rains, warning of what was to come, had soaked the red dust of the Himalayas. The air was clean and cool. Myriads of tiny blue, white, and yellow potentia had suddenly blanketed the green tundra above the timberline. It was curious how the colors deepened as we descended the slope. White grew highest, then yellow, mixed with white, and finally blue flowers dotted the landscape farther down. The rains weren't bad enough to travel in, but at least they were a welcome change from the snow about 17,000 feet. Gusinkan Pass had been the last high obstacle to Kathmandu on our return trip from the northern border of Nepal. In fact, the day before had seen us sloshing knee-deep in the soft, wet snow. Our coolies suffered the most. Half-naked and barefooted, they had struggled desperately carrying 80-pound packs on their backs. A Himalayan blizzard is no joke, even for the experienced native porters, when slippery rocks and precocious ledges must be climbed. Brooks, Dr. George K. Brooks. An entomologist on our staff and I were slowly making our way back to our homes in Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, from a mission of mercy to the Sherpas of the northern country. The government had asked us to help in controlling an epidemic of typhus in Sherperland, our name for the high Himalayan country close to the Tibet border. We had been the doctors assigned to the job and now were weary but satisfied that the evil rickettsia were licked for good. We raced to get home before the monsoon whipped us. Black skies, torrents of rain, and foggy slippery trails on the sides of the mountains obviously held no love the Himalayan intruders such as we. It was at 11,000 feet, I remember that we had left Turkey Gyung, the last village of the grateful Sherpas. We are heading south now. The foothills of the Himalayas that surrounded Kathmandu, 28 miles away, were visible from the tops of the mountains. This was the era of the Home of the Gods, a holy place to the natives. Our footsteps follow the same path two or three thousand devout Hindus take on the annual pilgrimage to worship in the Himalayan Heights. A scant two or three hundred return from these journeys. The rest die along the way. On our journey up, smoke from countless funeral pyres were a reminder of the rigor and mystery of the area. The trail was less steep now, but slick with red mud. Mossy pines closed over us and thrust their sprawling roots across the way. Bloodthirsty leeches, lurking under the rocks and awakened by our sounds, crawled on our boots and up the coolies' dark nude limbs at every step. Only speed and more speed would enable us to leave this dismal, lonely, godforsaken range of mountains. Brooks, as we called him, and I pushed as hard and as fast as we dared. Abrasive-soled boots and six-foot balancing poles cut from the timber enabled us to make excellent time on a ribbon of red mud. It was not long before we had left the coolies far behind. Not even their cries and shouts could be heard. The forest was deathly still. Fog banks, raw and cold, drifted through the tall pines and left their boughs dripping and slimy. Rounding a sharp turn in the trail, Brooks stopped abruptly. He leaned against a large rock to extract a leech that was at the point of disappearing over the edge of his boot. I stood there watching Brooks and fumbling for my pipe, when an almost imperceptible movement in a clump of tall rhododendron caught my eye. Something had moved, I was sure. There it was again. This time a few leaves rustled more than mere chance could move. Brooks, sensing something was wrong, quickly forgot about his leech. Almost simultaneously, we both slipped our revolvers out of their holsters. On our right, the slope was dangerously steep. Behind us, the slope climbed upward. There was a large boulder by the side of the trail, and we eased over to it, glad for the protection from the rear that it afforded us. We waited, tense and expectant. The stillness was awesome. The fog and mist seemed to form weird shapes, "'withering and twisting through the dense foliage. "'Suddenly from in front of us, "'a raucous scream pierced the air. "'Another followed from the right of us. "'The ghostly quality of the mist "'and the unreality of the situation "'had a nightmarish tinge. "'God!' Brooks whispered. "'What was that?' "'My spine was tingling in high gear now. "'I gripped my 38 Smith & Wesson more firmly. "'About 20 feet away, somewhat in front of our rock, was the clump of rhododendron where the first scream broke the stillness. This time, it seemed as though. It was behind us. Brooks, I managed to whisper. Let's get on this rock and in a hurry. Brooks did not need a second invitation. In an instant, we scrambled on top of the massive boulder. From our new perch, we carefully searched in all directions for the next move. Our movements must have been closely watched. For a loud chattering immediately assailed us from the bushes in front. The angry chatter filled the raw air as new cries joined in the chorus from all sides. We were definitely surrounded. Brooks muttered, oh my god, how many of them are there? And what are they? Brooks, I managed to whisper, let's get on this rock and in a hurry. Brooks did not need a second invitation. In an instant we scrambled on top of the massive boulder, From our new perch, we carefully searched in all directions for the next move. Our movements must have been closely watched, for a loud chattering immediately assailed us from the bushes in front. The angry chatter filled the raw air as new cries joined in the chorus from all sides. We were definitely surrounded. Brooks muttered, Oh my God, how many of them are there? And what are they? We got some idea of what was there when a hideous face thrust apart the wildly thrashing leaves and gaped at us. I shall not long forget the faces. Grayish skin, beetle-black eyebrows, a mouth that seemed to extend from ear to ear, and long yellowish teeth were nerve-shattering enough, but those eyes, beady, yellow eyes, that stared at us with obvious, demonical cunning and anger. That face! Weird idea as we were beginning to Forced their way into mind. Perhaps, but no, damn it, it has to be. This was the abominable snowman. No, I insisted to myself, there is no such creature as an abominable snowman or yeti. This face has to be an ape or a man or a demon or the snowman. A hand pushed through the leaves, then a quick movement in a shoulder. There before us appeared the semblance of a body. Sweat was visible on Brooke's face now as we crouched lower, hugging the rock for what it was worth. My hands looked white in the semi-darkness. As the creature emerged through the dark leaves, we strained to make out this form. I felt blind panic start through me. Then I stopped. Balls of fire, I thought. I've got to get a grip on myself. The creature was about five feet tall, half crouching on two thin hairy legs. Leering at us in an undisguised fury, claws or hands seemed dark, perhaps black, while his bedraggled, hairy body was grey and thin. It shuffled along with a stoop the way a Neolithic caveman might have walked. Well built and sinewy, it could prove to be the most formidable opponent. Teeth bared, it snarled like an animal. Two long fangs protruded from its upper lip. Suddenly, a sharp, flickering movement behind it caught our eyes. "'George, a tail! Look there!' Brooks cried. A thousand thoughts raced through my mind at once. "'Well, Brooks,' I replied, "'this thing could be the abominable snowman, "'but it also can be an ape, a large logger or ape, perhaps?' Truthfully, I was more concerned with survival than identification. The band of animals was certainly aggressive, giving every indication that they meant to destroy us. But I couldn't help thinking about the creatures themselves. They didn't look like the common langur monkeys I had seen in India. At the same time, they had ape-like characteristics. Scientific possibilities crowded their way into my mind, even as I checked my revolver for the attack. Higher altitudes, fewer minerals in the water could produce less hair. Lack of heavy timber in the high regions, which would make climbing ability relatively valueless, could produce an erect species. Mutations, the methods by which new species are created, have occurred and are constantly observable in laboratories. Variations within a single species over a period of time can produce animals greatly different from the parent strain. I had no time to share these thoughts with Brooks. The best I could mumble was an unsteady get ready. Other figures were now approaching from several directions. We could make out six or seven of them through the mist. One appeared to be carrying a baby around its neck. They seemed to mean business as they growled at each other. The one that had pushed through the foliage first was a leader. There was little question as to his authority as he led the attack. Brooks, I said hurriedly. Let's try firing over their heads to see if we can scare them. Don't hit them, for heaven's sake, or we may have them in a frenzy. A wounded animal, if they are animals, won't stop. And if they are demons, the Sherpas will never forgive us if we kill them. The Sherpas, superstitious as they are, would rather be killed than offend their gods, especially here. Okay, George, you say when, he replied softly. We sighted carefully through the fog and waited until the repulsive faces were about ten feet away. We squeezed the triggers almost together. The blast swirled in the fog in front of us. Splinters of wood and torn leaves fell through the foliage. The creatures stopped abruptly. A deftly, fearsome silence pervaded the darkening air. "'Let's give them another one, Brooks,' I shouted more confident now. The second volley resounded, and we were definitely reassured. A third round this time convinced the demons.' They turned, howling like wounded coyotes, and fled into the thicket. The excited chattering from the gray gloom told us, however, that they had not gone far. Burks was reassured. As we reloaded, he asked dauntily, What's next, George? Shall we attack? I felt as Burks felt. We needed to do something and do it fast. On second thought, however, caution was required. Slowly, I said, we'll wait it out. I believe until our coolies catch up. We wouldn't have a chance if we moved forward or even tried to make a break. I don't believe that they'll attack the whole party. Our problem now is just how far behind are the coolies. It's getting dark and these pirates won't miss the chance to eat us alive if I don't miss my gas. In another 20 minutes, we won't be able to see at all. We sank back on the rock and waited during the twilight, nervous as cats caught up a tree. We listened for the sound of the coolies, and we listened for the change in the growls from the thicket that might indicate another attack. At this point we knew the demons were discussing our future and wondering how to play their cards. We tried to joke, but it was corny and useless. We were scared. The fog was unbearable. It penetrated our wet clothes and chilled our bodies. I shivered suddenly. The rock was uncomfortable. We squirmed continuously as rough edges dug into our muscles. Fog now, almost impenetrable, swirled slowly through the black foliage, throwing dark shadows here and there in wraith-like patterns. Grotesque forms appeared and gaped at us, only to disappear and leave our eyes red and tear-stained from the strain. Brooks pulled out a cigarette and lit it nervously. I knew he wasn't enjoying it. It couldn't be worth the effort. Perhaps it gave him something to do with his free hand. It was then that I discovered that I was unconsciously clicking the cylinder release on my revolver back and forth. Brooks gave me a dirty look, and I stopped. The chattering and snarling from the thicket came only intermittently now. I tried to guess the leader's plan. Was he waiting for reinforcements? No, not likely. There couldn't be too many of them in the hills, and this no doubt was the entire pack. Planning to attack? This was more reasonable. No doubt they would hit us in one mad rush. Yes, a single massed attack at the time of their choosing. They would certainly wait until dark at any rate. Damn those coolies! Where were they? The lazy, unreliable boneheads. Have they bedded down for the night? No, they would want a village with all the comforts attached. They'll come. It was almost dark now. We kept straining to see through the gray mist. We were cold and wet. Our clothes clung to us, a black and yellow striped leech crawling up the rock fastened itself on Brooke's boot. The leech, unsure of its prey, stopped and listened. Weaving its upright body slowly in the air, I reached down and plucked it off the wet leather. Half-consciously, I rolled the worm in my fingers, trying to crush it. It was too rubbery. I flung it into the trail in sudden disgust. The chattering around us was growing noticeably louder. Sudden loud and urgent growls pretended something new in the offing. Brooks, this is it. Shoot to kill this time and pray. I remember giving him one last look. We had met in Kathmandu only the year before. Already he had become a friend that I could know forever. I cocked the thirty-eight and waited. "'George!' Brooks whispered excitedly. "'They've stopped talking.' An uncanny and eerie silence pervaded the air. What was happening? I raised myself a bit higher on the rock. If they were crawling in for the attack, we had to make every shot count. In the bad light, a thirty-eight would not be a very effective weapon, and they wouldn't be afraid this time. But not a movement was discernible. Not a sound could be heard. We waited anxiously. Sweat adding to the soddenness of our clothes. Damn it, George, where are they? Then a sound from the right, a cracking of a twig. They're coming down the trail, George. Can you see them? I sighted the barrel of the thirty-eight at the leading figure in the mist. Almost now. A bit closer. Sahib? Sahib? A voice called in the darkness. I hesitated a moment, and then came to a sudden realization. Brooks, Brooks, it's the coolies. Thank God we're okay now. Shiva, we're here. Shiva, on the rock. Come ahead. Beautiful, lovely Shiva, my Gurkha foreman, boss of the porters, one of the finest men I've ever known, can ever hope to know, a loyal, dependable, quiet little man whose resource and strength lay deep within him. Not on the surface, a look from him had more effect on the Sherpas than a whiplash would have. For me, he was always there when I needed him. I needed him now. He was here. Sahib, you okay? We hear shots. We come up quick. God Almighty, we thank you, Brooks murmured. Yes, Shiva, we're okay now, I said. Let's go home. My staff and friends back in Kathmandu got quite a laugh when we described our experience on the ridge near Kusenkund. Several wanted to go back immediately. But the monsoon was on us, and the torrents made mountain travel out of the question. When the rains had spent their fury, my medical duties took me twice again, through the same region. I never saw the animals again. What was it that we saw? A mutant species that man has not yet categorized? Some kind of ape, large, erect, adapted to the high altitudes, made antisocial by its self-imposed isolation, jealous of any invasion of its realm? Perhaps. Or was it an entirely new species, an undiscovered animal, a leftover remnant of a prehistoric day, a creature clever enough to elude the curiosity of man, inhabiting an area still almost wholly unpenetrated by even the Sherpas, who seldom stray from the time-worn trails? From 1816 to 1951, The country of Nepal, for all intent and purpose, was closed to the outside world. Even today, only a handful of outsiders have explored but a tiny portion of this land. Yet it was this handful, more interested in climbing mountains than foraging for new species, that brought back tales and evidence of the mysterious creature they call the Yeti. One thing is certain. Whatever science will someday discover it to be, the creature humankind has called the Abominable Snowman is there in the Himalayan Heights. I know. I met it there on the Pilgrim Trail from Tarkaigion. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or
3: anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com.